Happy Halloween, everyone. I hope your day is filled with many scares and lots of candy. For today, we have a special batch of stories guaranteed to give you the chills. Let us begin, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. A strange storm hit when I was in preschool. It wasn't a tornado. Written by Hawk Frost of RiverClan. It happened when I was in preschool. The funny thing is, it's roughly the only event from those days that I have a clear memory of. The rest is remembered the same way most things are remembered. Hazy. Piecemeal bits that string together into roughly coherent memories. I don't know why I remember this event as well as I do. Maybe it never actually happened, and it's a false memory my mind conjured up, and that's why it's so clear. It would certainly explain why I can't find any records of a tornado. The most logical explanation for what had happened that day, going through the area around that time. It was several years ago. Somewhere between 2005 and 2007, maybe 2004. Even with how well I remember the events of that day, I don't remember the exact year it was in. There are other details that I don't remember either, like what the teacher's names were, or what my friends' names were, or if I had any real friends at that time for that matter. Nor do I recall what we did before the storm rolled in, probably what children normally did in preschool during the early 2000s. It's been such a long time that I honestly don't remember what the schedule was, or if we even had one. I remember that it was a beautiful spring day when my mother dropped me off at preschool. The sun was shining and there wasn't a single cloud in the sky. The trees were all covered in buds and the flowers had begun to bloom. It was the kind of day you tend to picture when asked to imagine a beautiful spring day, if that makes any sense at all. The next few hours, minutes, I don't know how much time elapsed between the moment that I was dropped off and the moment that everything got weird. But the time between then and when we were allowed outside to play was presumably very uneventful, if I can't remember much of it at all. I do remember the teacher reprimanding one of the little boys in my class for pulling my hair repeatedly. I even remember his name. Well, I remember what the teacher called me anyway. She called him Mikey, so I assume his name was Michael. Maybe it was Micah. And I don't know if parents name their kids things like that very often in those days. I don't remember if Mikey had ever done anything like that to me before. I do remember that he was a troublemaker though. 
He liked to test the limits of the rules and basically do the exact opposite of what the teacher told him. There had been a few times where he tried to climb the fence to escape during outside time. Other times he would hide when we were called back inside. Anyway, everything started when we were all outside. The outdoor play area of the preschool was muddy and surrounded by several tall trees and a chain-link fence that had ivy snaking up at it in places. I was doing what I tended to do at that age and during recess for years afterwards, which was actively, whether intentionally or not, alienating myself from the other kids by acting like a weirdo. Unlike most girls my age, I was more interested in playing with whatever bugs I found in the grass than with dolls. I was, dare that I say it, a bit of a preschool pariah, at least with the other little girls. I got along well enough with some of the boys though. I and one of the boys, I think his name was Timothy, but it might have been something else entirely were attempting to capture a large grasshopper in a plastic bucket, with little success. Suddenly, Timothy looked up at the sky. He looked confused. I continued following the grasshopper until I realized that he was still staring at the sky, and so I turned to look up at whatever he and many of the other children were now looking at. Dark, almost black clouds were spreading across the blue sky at a remarkably fast pace if I remember correctly. Strangely, and this may just be the result of the memory being distorted over time, I remember that the clouds didn't look right. They didn't look like how clouds are supposed to. They almost looked alive for lack of a better word. They seemed to swirl and bubble like a liquid, and the way that they spread out looked almost like something reaching giant tentacles across the heavens. I remember hearing one of the teachers shout to the one who was supervising us, just as the wind had started to pick up, and the black cloud completely covered the sky. Get the children inside, now! The teacher hurried us all inside the preschool in a very disorganized fashion. Normally, they would get us into a line first, but this time, she just herded all of us towards the door, casting occasional frightened glances upwards at the swirling dark clouds above. After we were all inside, the teacher slammed the door shut behind her, it was at that point I noticed all the windows had their shades pulled. The wind outside was howling loudly, and I could hear the sounds of branches from the trees hitting the roof of the building, and that was soon joined by the sound of pouring rain slamming into the tin roof, punctuated by deep rumbles of thunder that sent waves of fear through myself and the other children. I mean, who isn't afraid of thunder at that age? The teachers brought us inside the big room where inside recess was usually held. This time, though, 
instead of being given the go-ahead to begin playing, with the many toys in the room as we usually were. They told us to sit down facing the wall opposite the windows, all huddled together. Then all four of them sat down behind us, as if trying to form a protective wall between us and the storm raging outside. At that point, the wind was no longer howling. It was roaring. The power cut off and we were plunged into darkness. The only light came from the windows. The windows in the big room all had shades except for one. This big, decorative window that I assume was supposed to let sunlight in. I craned my neck back to look out that window, which the teachers had tried to haphazardly cover with a blanket. Enough of it was still uncovered that I could see outside. And outside, it looked like another world. The wind was whipping across the place where moments earlier we had been playing happily, sending branches and play equipment flying. I heard one of the teachers shout something above the roar of the wind and rain. Remember how I said that we were all inside. And remember how I said that Mikey liked trying to escape the preschool during outdoor play. Well, he had hidden outside again. And in the frenzied rush to get all of us inside. I guess the teacher forgot to make sure that we were all present until it was far too late. On the other side of the glass, looking inside in utter terror, visible only in the gap between the two blankets that were covering the window, was Mikey. He looked terrified. One of the teachers got up to go and grab him from outside, when the already terrifying roar of the storm suddenly rose into a shriek. The teacher didn't even bother putting on her coat. She just ran out of the door, leaving it open rather reckless in hindsight. She grabbed Mikey and fought against the wind to bring him back inside. The storm must have had hurricane forest winds because she looked like one of those newscasters when they're trying to stand upright in the middle of a hurricane. Eventually, she got him to the door and shoved him inside ahead of her. He darted inside and collapsed into a wet little quivering pile among the other children on the floor. I heard one of the other teachers telling me not to look, but I didn't listen. Sometimes I wonder if I should have listened to her, because what I saw next has stuck with me ever since. The teacher who had gone out to grab Mikey was inches from the door when something... Something grabbed her. That's the only way I can describe it. Something large and gray and moving entirely too fast for me to tell what it was plowed right into her and sped off into the storm, taking her with it. It wasn't a tornado. If it was that, it should have sucked us out of the open doorway. It didn't look like a tornado either. It was just a fast-moving, dark, gray mass. All I remember for a while after that was the sound of screaming. And then I finally did the smart thing and I closed my eyes.
Hours had passed by the time I got the courage to open my eyes again. Nobody had moved an inch except one of the four. Well, now it was only three teachers. She must have shut the door shortly after the screaming had started, because she was unlocking it when I opened my eyes. Everyone left the school a lot earlier than usual that day. I remember as I walked with my mother to the car, I would look around. Nothing outside had changed at all. There were no branches on the roof, no puddles on the ground. It was as if the storm hadn't happened at all. I've tried asking my parents about what happened that day. If they remember me being sent home early because of a storm. If they remember one of the teachers at my preschool disappearing one day and never coming back. They don't remember much. My mother has said that she remembers we got sent home early one time due to a local tornado watch in the area. That's about it. And even then that sounds incredibly suspicious. A tornado watch is issued when prime conditions for a tornado to form are present. If that thing was a tornado, we should have been issued a tornado warning, not a watch. And it wasn't a tornado. It couldn't have been. Besides the obvious fact that I shouldn't be here writing this down if that had been a tornado, I've looked everywhere I could think of for a record of a tornado in the area at the time, and I found absolutely nothing. Tornadoes aren't common in the part of the US that we live in. Because of that, I thought that it would be relatively easy to find a record of the storm, assuming that it was merely a tornado and not something less explainable. After all, there wouldn't be that much stuff to sift through. As I said though, I found nothing. Even then, a tornado is the most logical explanation for what happened that I can think of. But I can't find any evidence of one, and there are so many peculiarities about that storm that don't fit in with the tornado explanation. Especially the lack of any damage, or even puddles after the storm had passed. Tornadoes usually leave trails of destruction in their wake. If that was a tornado, there should have been some sign of it being there after the fact. But there was nothing. I didn't stay in contact with any of my fellow children after preschool. I don't remember their names, aside from Mikey, and even then, I don't remember his actual full name, nor do I really think it would be a good idea to bother him about what must have been a very traumatic event, considering that he almost didn't make it that day. And I don't remember the names of the teachers either. In fact, nobody does. The preschool is still there. There are new teachers. The remaining three have presumably retired years ago, and new children along with that. For me, I'm moving on with my life. I'm in college. I'm trying to be an adult and do adult things.
and I hope to God that I never see those strange clouds again. The same scream echoes from the woods every night by my house. I decided to follow it. Written by J. Man Cartilli. My parents must have spent their 20 plus years on this earth, avoiding all horror films in order to have believed this house would make a good family home. They bought it when my mom was pregnant with my sister, and claimed to have liked the nature feel to it. This is an optimist way of saying it's a decent sized house that had the price dragged down due to it being across from the most monstrously daunting woods that Edgar Allan Poe and Alfred Hitchcock's love child could have conjured up. It stands like a thousand gaunt giants about to declare war on our otherwise peaceful town with nothing but a small field the kids of the estate would play on to separate it from mine and my neighbor's homes that were bought for the same financial reason as mine. Being the morbidly curious toddler that I was, it didn't take long for me to start spending my nights gazing out of my bedroom window into the woodland. I would sometimes make my sister come up with stories about the creatures that lurked within. She would tell me about the shadow men, angry spirits that would hide in the darkness that nighttime provided, allowing them to creep at the edge of the woods, with their only human quality being their bulging eyes that they used to look at the houses on our road and decide which little boy they wanted to steal from their bed and turn into a missing poster forever. A ghost story generic enough to send a jolt of terror through my four-year-old body before hiding my face and asking her to continue while searching for those bulging eyes through the trees. My fascination with the unknown was healthy at that age. It was only when I grew old enough to start staying up late that things began spiraling. That's when I started to hear the scream. It was too faint to feel threatened by, but too desperate to dismiss his kids messing around, despite that being all my parents thought of it. It'll just be teenagers staying up late in the woods, probably getting drunk and being naughty where no adults can stop them. My dad would tell me once I had reached nine years old. Miss Nichols from next door says kids have been doing it for years. It's probably just the local hangout. My mom would speculate when brought up to her. It gave me an opportunity to push it out of my mind. But I had already spent too many nights creating stories of my own that would explain the cries of horror. The older that I got, the more that I would stay up to listen. It tended to sound sometime after 11pm, but always before 2am. The hardest part to fathom was the identical tone every night. I had been hearing it for years now and it was always these same few seconds at the same pitch, with the same cracks in the vocals halfway through. It sounded like it came from a woman. Maybe it was the shadow men. Maybe they had found a little boy to steal and they would toy with his soul every night. I shuddered with fear and creative excitement. By 13, I did what any imagination riddled kid would do and I brought it up to my best friend Tyler in class, 
He wasn't as creative with his thoughts, but he shared my love of finding a mystery and making it as bad as possible. I heard that an older girl went missing in the years back. I bet it's her still getting cut open slowly every night and used as a demon's punching bag. His eyes arrived in a sea of sadism. It's the same every night though, like no change at all. Have you really never heard it before? Nah, he responded while swiveling on his chair, checking for the teacher's disapproving eyes every few seconds. I told you, your road is weird. All the old people there are proper strange, and that's why the weird stuff happens in your area and not mine, he continued. My cat went missing once, man, and my neighbor's dog got hit by a car. That's all that's happened there. We even ended up finding my cat. Well, I bet the demons took it in the first place. He mumbled under his breath. I used the sudden silence as a chance to propose what I had been wanting to do for years, hoping Tyler being involved would give me the courage. You think we should go looking for it? What, your cat? You just said that you found it, didn't you? Not the cat, idiot, I spat. The scream. Tyler's eyes lit up and swam in the same look from just moments before. Heck yeah, bro. My parents are out this Friday and asked if I wanted my cousin to sleep over, but he's weird. I can convince them to let you stay. And with that, we both went home knowing exactly what our Friday evening would entail. And by the time I got to my front door, I got a text from Tyler saying that we had the green light. I got the same from my parents shortly after. It was finally happening. I got to Tyler's house just as his parents were heading out. His mom was the kind of woman to make any child who entered her home feel like one of Tyler's siblings. She was sweet welcoming, and I'm fairly sure my own mom got jealous from time to time of my infection towards her. It's not a school night, so don't worry about a bedtime, you two. We'll probably be back late anyway. She shouted from the doorway while grabbing her coat. We both know that they would stay in long after midnight. With the sound of agreement from Tyler and a final farewell from his dad, we were alone for the night, hoping to discover something to make us feel anything but that. And we played on Tyler's PlayStation for about two hours to be sure that we weren't waiting too long to hear the scream. Less than a fraction of our conversation not being about what we'll come back to the house knowing after tonight. I watched Tyler rummage through the boxes under his bed to find two torches. I noticed that mine wasn't as powerful as his on the walk to my road, but it was still enough to make me feel like a professional ghost hunter. The dirty, creepy looking woods appeared even more eerie when I knew that I was about to be within the foreign demise. We stood in front of its towering abyss like toddlers in the path of a demonic tsunami. I could tell neither of us wanted to lead the way in. Didn't you say a girl went missing in here once? I asked, watching my torchlight shiver in my unsteady hands. Yeah, my dad told me about it when I was little. She was from around here. You think it's her? Or do you think she was looking for the scream too? I turned to face Tyler and we shared a look of nervous hesitation before continuing into the trees. 
It was like the woods stood under a different sky to that we were just beneath. A much darker, hopeless, engulfing sky. And the streetlight glow that deemed our torches useless on the walk down was completely absent as soon as we had left civilization behind. The woods crackled and whistled all around us. Just our presence there wrapped us in the terror I didn't know we could feel before even hearing the scream. Anything outside of our torch glow was drowning in black, and it was impossible to make out. We were hardly 20 steps in before Tyler started to lose his nerve. This is weird, man. What if we get lost? I think we should go back to mine. He turned to face me, blinding me with his torch. Don't be a baby, bro. We said that we would find the scream tonight and that's what we're doing. We're not leaving here until... My defiance was interrupted by the unmistakable sound of a sudden, strong inhale sounding a few feet away from us. We both went silent, as we darted our torchlights to where we heard it. Nothing. What the heck was that? Tyler whispered, his voice trembling. Before I could even decide between fight or flight, my eardrums were shredded by the most vile, agonizing screech a human could make. The inhale was a few feet away, but this sounded like it was right between me and Tyler. We both snapped stray twigs and tore leaves while scrambling to turn back. We must have been back in the field in 10 seconds. It felt like an hour. Man, we didn't stop there. Me and Tyler didn't slow down in the slightest as we sprinted back to his. I don't remember anything he said to me, but I remember the hysteric, sobbing tone in which he had said it between the pounding of our shoes on the pavement. Tyler locked his door the second that we got back inside, and we climbed the stairs to his room and both sat on his bed. Never again, he said, not even turning to look at me. I went quiet, and so did any conversation about that scream for the next three years. I sometimes thought about bringing the scream back up to Tyler. I would wonder if he was secretly matching my remaining curiosity or was happy to leave it behind him in the most isolated corner of his subconscious. If the latter was the case, I didn't want to confess just how obsessed I'd become with those woods. I still let their anonymity dance around my brain at night, while getting visually lost in their mystery. I even researched their history and though I found no one who could match my predicament, I found a news article about the girl that Tyler had told me about. She was my age when she went missing, after drunkenly staggering into the woodland after celebrating a friend's 16th birthday. She didn't vanish, however. They found her after 35 hours. That's what the report said. But after falling hard into the rabbit holes of the internet, I found the rumors that stated the police had to drag her out from under a decaying log, covered in dirt and insects, begging them, please, don't let it get me and did you kill it? Please take me home. She had moved out of towns a few months after and gave no insight to anyone online or in person as to what she went through and what she saw. At least not that anyone knows of. I often pondered whether I should have stayed in those woods that night. Nothing could have wrecked the adrenaline that noise gave me, but if I just fought it a bit more, I wouldn't be here. Still desperate to finish what me and Tyler had started that night. 
I didn't want anyone there this time. I couldn't allow myself to be rattled by a tag-along's fear. Why did you do this alone? And as I sat on the end of my bed, with the certainty of my future crashing around my brain, I came to an embarrassing realization. I don't own a torch. There was a supermarket with an aisle that sold random gadgets not too far from my house. I told myself that I would get everything I need tonight and head across the road and back into the theme of my nightmares tomorrow. I gave it one last glance as a declaration of war before I left my front door and set off walking. I was floating around my own little world with my headphones in, lost in thought about exactly what you would expect when I heard my name being called through the blaring music. I looked up to see Tyler wandering across the road a big smile on his face. How you doing, bro? Hey, where you off to? He was more dressed up than he tended to be. Oh, just heading to the shops for a couple of things. What are you doing? I told you in science today, man. Charlotte's having a party since her parents are away, and we're heading there now. I looked across the road to see some familiar faces from school waiting for Tyler. Oh, yeah, I completely forgot. You should come with us. You never go out anyway. It would be good to leave that bedroom once in a while. Oh, don't worry about me, man. Honestly, I need to go shopping anyway. You getting food? He asked with a raised eyebrow. No. You getting something important? Um, no. I lied. Then you're coming, bro. Come on. Before I could retaliate further... Tyler threw his arm around me and forcefully escorted me across the road to his friends. I wasn't much of an extrovert, but having a drink with some friends didn't sound awful compared to the weekend that I had in mind. Plus, I had a bit of a crush on Charlotte, and I had been told that she felt similar. I could always get the torch tomorrow anyway. Everyone was already drunk by the time that we got there. I wasn't too upset about this since it distracted them from my very unprepared appearance. Charlotte was no exception. She ran over to me and Tyler, hugging us both but kissing me on the cheek. She pushed two beers into our hands and encouraged us to drink. So we did. Me and Tyler stood in her kitchen and went from awkward small talk to tipsy reminiscing to full-blown drunken idiocy. We wandered around the house together like it was an alcohol-soaked maze, before we found a spot on the living room floor, and I slumped myself next to Charlotte on the sofa. I was enjoying having the courage to flirt and do so successfully when I felt my phone vibrating. I pulled it out of my pocket to see my mom calling. Crap. It was midnight and I never messaged her to tell her that I was going out. She must have just got back from her date night with dad. I hardly said goodbye before rushing out of the door and wobbling down the road, without even tying my shoelaces. I took a few breaks to lean against a lamppost and pray the spinning would calm. I found my panicked run downgrading into a clumsy stroll. All I could think about was what tonight distracted me from. The same images spiraled behind my eyes over and over. I caught myself muttering some of my thoughts out loud now and then. I was a mess. By the time my house was a few steps ahead, sobriety was still a mile's worth of travel away, 
I fumbled through my pocket for my house keys and put my phone's flash on so I could see what I was doing. I was less than a second away from sliding the key into my door when I realized where I was and what I was holding. My phone's flash was nothing compared to the light of a good torch, but I was too intoxicated to care. I turned around and faced my next bad drunken decision. I crossed the road and made my way through the field. Alcohol had given me more courage than Tyler ever could. I wasn't scared or nervous, just excited and adventurous. The flash lazily swayed through the trees as I approached, and I didn't even stop before piercing the thick darkness. I was deeper into the woods in 30 seconds than me and Tyler got the whole time that we were there. I tripped over branches and bumped into trees, but I continued onwards. Hello? I bellowed. I'm here to hear you screaming. Am I too late? Why don't you come out and let me see you? I slurred into the air. There was nothing but the scurry of small animals and the calling of birds. I let my uncoordinated body sink to the ground and I sat against a tree. I examined my surroundings with blurred vision and let my eyes adjust. It was darker than I remembered. Actually, it was getting darker the longer that I sat. I watched any hint of light slowly vanish until I was able to acknowledge what was happening. I was falling asleep. I was awoken by a loud crackle of snapping branches. I didn't know how long I had been out, but my phone's flash was still on, so it couldn't have been long. As I tried to process what I just heard, it sounded again. It sounded like a group of people moving through the trees suddenly, and then stopping to repeat the same action. I dragged myself to my feet, only slightly more sober than I was before I had nodded off. I frantically tried to remember which way I came in as the crunching continued. I soon stopped caring and just wanted to be out of this place I willingly re-entered. The noises were getting closer. I hadn't even set off running when a familiar noise savaged these silent woods. The scream was back and this time, whatever it was was right behind me. I only ran a few feet when my path was obstructed by something. A tree or a fallen log maybe. I didn't stop long enough to analyze. I turned left to keep running and was stopped by an identical structure. I spun in every direction besides the one in which the scream just sounded from and came to a realization that twisted my stomach and clawed at my brain. Whatever was stopping me wasn't a part of the woods. They were tall, slim silhouettes of barely human creatures blocking my every escape. They moved towards me but their legs didn't stride. My malfunctioning brain was taken back to my sister's stories of the Shadow Men. Only these were nothing a creative mind could invent. There were no bulging eyes on their heads. Just an empty abyss getting closer. As every option of freedom grew bleak, I fell to the ground. Surrounded by the approaching horde and I did all I could do. I screamed. After the echo of my horror slowly disintegrated into the wind... I still laid there cowering. Nothing was touching me and the sounds had ceased. I was almost allowed the feeling of relief when I lifted my head and saw nothing there. 
I wondered if whatever I had just encountered was driven away by my gravelly call. It wasn't. All I did was give away my location to something worse. My eyes locked on to the only movement still present in the woods. Through the trees, far away enough to give me time, but close enough to make out was a humanoid shape approaching. It didn't move like the other creatures. It walked, but its knee joints didn't connect or support its frame like they should. It limped through the dim light my phone was still providing by the tree. Its arms were stiff by its side, and I heard the faint cracking of its bones as it approached. Its jaw hung loose from its mouth and was letting out a distant moaning. Not the kind I or anyone else could replicate. More like the metallic wailing of a shipwreck. I was no longer a drunken kid in the woods. I was prey. As the cracking of its bones and grew close enough to almost reveal its full, sickening form, I turned my back and followed my instincts. This was no longer a mystery to unravel. I either ran or died. I tripped on roots and fallen branches but was too determined to stop. I saw the flicker of streetlights through the trees and found more speed within me that I didn't even know was there. Just as a frightened victory began welling up in my eyes, I slammed into someone. Whoa, slow down son, are you okay? I flipped myself over and began scrambling backwards to see a police officer stood over me. Another one waited in the field. What are you doing out here, young man? Your parents are worried sick. I tried climbing back to my feet, but couldn't find the strength. I, I was just... something is. Before I could form a sentence, I hunched over and found myself staring at a puddle of my own vomit. You'll be okay, son. You've just had a bit too much tonight. We'll get you some water and get you home. The officer helped me up and escorted me out to the field. I knew what was happening, but I was very much not present. What was that thing? What surrounded me? I couldn't even turn back, knowing that I would be staring at the monster's home. My parents were too relieved to see me to be angry. They just took me upstairs and helped me get ready for bed. My mom stayed in my room all night, but I don't think that I closed my eyes for a second. I've had a curfew since that night. I haven't told anyone what happened after that party, especially not Tyler. My curtains stay closed now. I can't bring myself to look out of my window and back into that den of evil. I do everything I can to avoid the thought, but there's just one thing I can't control. One thing that keeps that night fresh in my mind. Sometime after 11pm, but always before 2am, a scream echoes through the night. A few seconds are a bit longer now, and the tearing vocals have been replaced with a gravelly distortion. It's no longer a woman's shriek. I wish that I could move far away from here. Somewhere where I can't hear my own scream immortalized in those woods every night. With that being said, until I can finally leave this road, I'll listen to my scream every night, just as I did to the girls before me. I went looking for the scream of someone who got away, just as she would have done before me. That means it's still hungry.
The night those woods stay silent until sunrise. Ah, oh, no, some poor soul went looking for someone who already escaped, leaving their family to look for someone who didn't. There's an extra month on my calendar, written by Way Blue. A very odd woman walks into an antique shop with a calendar, a clock, and a spray bottle. Earlier that day, August 31st, the shop door opened and a man walked inside. He looked surprised to see me. What happened to Margaret? Hey Dean, I'm Margaret's granddaughter, Adelaide. I'll be running this store from now on. I replied in the stereotypical fake, jovial tone that shopkeepers often use. What happened to Margaret? He repeated. Okay, I get it. My grandmother was a friendly woman and everyone loved her. But do I deserve to get treated like an outsider just because she left me the shop and her inheritance? My grandmother lost her battle with cancer. She left this antique shop for me. I used to help her run it when I was growing up. Oh, okay. Uh, my condolences, he said, before making his way down the aisle. This was my first day. Funnily enough, I wasn't even remotely nervous. I had been raised in the shop, whether I was running the cash register or restocking the shelves. Since I had graduated and moved to Massachusetts to study at Harvard Business School, I had rarely seen her. It was my biggest regret in the entire world that I wasn't here to be with her in her final days, as she had been my guardian for the majority of my childhood. But she seemed happy to know that I was studying to become a CEO. I had spent most of my life here. If continuing on my grandma's legacy meant sacrificing my career, then I was willing to drop everything with open arms and a handful of old items. How much is the china set? Dean asked. That set is $80, but I'll give you a discount. You were my grandmother's favorite customer. That was true. In fact, I had heard my grandma talk so much about Dean over the years that I was pretty sure she was in love. And by the look on his face when he walked in and saw my grandma wasn't at the front desk, let alone the fact that she had passed, I think the feeling was mutual. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Let me know if you need anything. He paid for the china set and walked out. I looked around. Some of my best childhood memories belonged in the store. So much happiness is attached to the moldy timber that the walls are made of. The concrete and the foundation. Heck, I could name every single stain on the floor. What made them and where they were. This store was the only thing in the world that could have prevented me from pursuing my dreams of becoming the world's top businesswoman. A man walked in. He had his son close by. They browsed the aisles up and down, the man explaining to his child while everything was worth so much. And then a very strange lady walked into the store. She had a slight limp. She was wearing an outfit that looked so familiar. 
She silently came up to the front counter and put three items on the table. A calendar, a clock, and a spray bottle. I had dealt with this before as a child. Fairly often, a customer will come in offering their own antiques. And we never refused acceptance. Hello, are you willing to sell these to us? She said nothing in return. She just turned and walked out of the store. Well, that's never happened before. Usually, they make us pay a small fortune. Must have just been a nice gesture. The man looked over to me. Are you two related? He asked me. No, I've never seen that woman in my life. Wow, you two look very similar. Later, when I was closing the shop, I decided that I would take the three items back home for myself. If she hadn't made us pay for them, it would be unfair for the business to profit from them. I pulled up to my apartment complex. When I had moved back here, I had made sure to get the most cozy apartment in the city, to which I had succeeded greatly. Excluding the store, this apartment was where I loved to be the most. I opened my door, walked into my bedroom and hung the clock up there. I then moved over to my kitchen and hung the calendar up above the bench. After browsing through the calendar and circling significant dates, I stumbled across something peculiar. More than peculiar. Something that had genuinely left me stumped and confused. There was an extra month, right between August and September. The page was titled, Flesroy. I noted the very odd placement of the capital letter. According to the calendar, this month was due to start tomorrow. Today was August 31st. I just assumed that it was a prank of some kind. That's why the lady was willing to give these items to the store for free. I fell asleep that night, completely forgetting about what I had stumbled upon. I woke up and glanced at the new clock that was on my wall. It read 12am and it was still dark outside. When I used to wake up in the middle of the night, I would always watch the clock tick by. It made me feel at peace and often nursed me back to sleep. But slowly, I noticed that the clock wasn't moving. The second hand, minute hand and hour hand all laid stationary, pointing north of their circular residence. I got out of bed and looked out of my window. I must have stared at the moon for at least half an hour. It was directly up in the sky. What confused me most was that the moon hadn't moved that entire time, nor had the clouds. It seemed like the entire world was on hold. I stumbled down these stairs of my apartment complex and made my way out into the street. There were a few cars on the road, but the ones that were out there were completely still. The lights were still on and the rims of the wheels were a blur, like someone had taken a photo of them while they were moving. Dazed and confused, I walked back up to my apartment and lay down on my bed. This is a dream. I've woken up at midnight and I'm dreaming. None of what I'm seeing is real. Go back to sleep. And so I did. I woke up hours later and desperately glanced at the clock. To my horror, 
All three of the time-telling sticks that usually marched around the clock stood frozen at twelve. I knew that I had fallen asleep. I had been asleep for hours. But the clock didn't move and the clouds had stayed exactly where they were when I had last woken up. I was puzzled and scared. I didn't know what to do. All I knew was that I was completely out of food. What was I going to do? Live in my house forever, waiting out this terrible rip in time. I walked out of my apartment and into the parking garage. I got into my car and plunged my key into the ignition. I expected nothing. But to my great surprise, the engine purred and my dashboard lights flickered to life. I sighed in relief and smiled to myself before, driving out of the parking area and out into the street. I cautiously drove around the frozen cars. They dotted the road frequently. I even noticed a silhouette of someone in a bedroom. It too was frozen. That gave me the creeps. Once I had found the supermarket and made my way in, I decided that paying for food wasn't necessary. Time was literally frozen. Nothing mattered for the next 30 days until I could ride out the month of Flesroy. I walked down the aisles. I was just bending down to get cereal when I noticed something out of the corner of my eye. I looked over and my heart stopped. Something was there. Something terrible. A tall, lumbering mess of flesh and bones sticking out at odd places. It wasn't human. It was a being of hatred and death, and I could feel it. I ran out with the few items that I had in my hand, and sped back to my house in shock the entire time. I slammed my apartment door behind me, and I locked it. What was that? Had it followed me? Was I safe? How long until it found me? I looked down at the street from my window and I literally felt my heart skip a few beats. There was the monster looking up at me. But what made it that much more terrifying was that they now flooded the streets. Different terrible creatures littered every part of the road. They stood in the driveways of houses. They literally caked the entire view beneath me. Days passed. I don't know how many because it remained night and my clock stood still. All I knew was that significant portions of time should have been passing and I was stuck in my apartment. The number of creatures on the street increased by the day, each one more terrible than the next. But I noticed something. The first monster that I saw, the one in the grocery store, always stood closer to me than the rest. It never took its eyes off of me. More time passed. By now, I knew that the month should have been over. But simultaneously, mere days could have passed. My sense of time was completely uncalibrated. It was totally plausible that I had been stuck in this month for weeks and weeks. But for all I knew, fewer time had passed. I had since run out of food, and my water supply was cut off. This world wouldn't sustain me. I needed to escape. I needed to speed up time. And then I remembered. The clock. 
The calendar was the actor, but the clock was the brains. The clock was what ran the operation. I ran into my bedroom and grabbed the clock off of my wall. I heard something coming up the stairs that my brain didn't register. I think the monsters could feel that I had found the solution, and they were finally capitalizing on me. I smashed the glass that separated me from the hands of the clock. I heard my door pound open. I looked at the clock. A thump. I gathered my strength. Another thump. I began moving the hands. A final thump. And then I felt the sweet release. The moon fell out of the sky and a new dawn began. The sun rose and dropped to which the moon would do the same. I spun the hands of the clock as fast as I could until I counted 30 revolutions. Just enough so that the month had passed and the date would become September 1st. Thump. Blinding pain. The monster stepped on my leg. I felt my bones crush and splinter underneath its weight. It snatched the clock out of my hands and began spinning the hands of the clock fast. Too fast. I felt myself begin to age as he spun the hands faster. Years were passing. Decades were flying by. And then it hit me. The spray bottle. It had to factor into the equation somehow. I couldn't move because the monster was stepping on my leg. But I reached into my dresser and pulled out the bottle. I pointed it right up to the monster and pressed down the nozzle. As soon as the liquid made contact with the monster, it began slowly shrinking and morphing into something else entirely. I saw it start to form characteristics of a human. It turned into me, a young me. It turned into me at the age that I was when I moved away from my grandmother. It turned into my biggest regret. I grabbed the clock from the me and spun the hands of the clock back the other way. I kept spinning them and spinning them, expecting my youth to return along with the rest of the world. But it didn't. I didn't feel any younger. The world was becoming younger and newer, returning back to 2021. But I wasn't moving with it. I remained old until I saw the date. August 31st, 2021, circled in the calendar. I got up, emotionally scarred and shocked, unable to talk. My leg was just a sack of blood and splintered bone. I picked up the three items and made my way to the antique store. I looked through the glass from the street and saw myself working at the counter. I saw the man and his son. I limp my way to the shop. A very odd woman walks into an antique shop with a calendar, a clock, and a spray bottle. My new next door neighbor is strange. Written by 02321. I have a new next door neighbor. I met him when I was waiting for the elevator in my apartment building. The building that I live in is a rundown piece of crap. However, it was the only place that I could afford. My apartment was on the fourth floor and the elevator was broken more often than it worked. 
I was just getting back from the grocery store, arms full of bags. When I left, the dang elevator was working so I stood in front of it for at least five minutes, expecting the doors to open. My rage was about to boil over and I raised a foot, ready to kick the door in frustration. I was tired, arms sore, and I didn't want to take the stairs. I stopped because someone reached over to press the button to get no response. I've never seen him before. He was a head taller than myself and in good shape. His hair needing gray even though he looked 30th the most. My building was full of poor families and some addicts. He looked as if he didn't belong. Well, in a way. He didn't look like he lived here. But he looked like the type of guy who came around looking for someone who owed money. I lowered my foot. Taking a few steps away from him, not wanting to be too close. I knew my place in the food chain and it was below him. He looked over at me when I moved, his gray eyes staring me down. I felt sweat start at the back of my neck from his intense gaze. I started to feel like I was going to puke from stress when he jerked a thumb at these still closed doors. Broken, he asked me. He had a hint of an accent that I couldn't place. I let myself exhale the breath I didn't know that I was holding. I nodded my head, still not ready to speak. He looked around the lobby and found the stairs. Because of so many break-ins, the landlord locked the stairway to the upper floors. But hadn't found a way to lock people out from accessing the apartment floors with the elevator if they got through the lobby first. With it being broken so often, he didn't need to bother. The man took out a key to open the stairway. To my surprise, he held the door open for me. I scurried along, carrying my heavy bags and trying to pass him as fast as possible. I went up the stairs first, but slowly. He should have been able to pass me without any trouble, but the man stayed behind a few steps and it stressed me out again. I was rather thankful that he did. On the second flight of stairs, I felt a handle on my bag snap. I nearly dropped everything trying to catch it, and I ended up falling backwards a step or two. Not only did the stranger catch me with one hand, but he caught my carton of eggs with the other. I stammered out an apology as my bag of oranges broke and tumbled down the stairs. He looked like the type to get angry. Instead, he just shook his head and helped me back on my feet. Ah, silly boy, I help. That time I caught a Russian accent when he spoke, one that he was poorly trying to hide. The next few minutes, we both started to gather up the spilled oranges from the stairway. He tied the bag but didn't hand it back to me. Silently, he was telling me that he would carry the broken bag of food and my carton of eggs to my apartment because I could not be trusted. My face was red from embarrassment, and people never helped me out and I didn't know how to deal with it. I just muttered out another thanks and let him follow me to the fourth floor. When I stopped in front of my door, he did a double take at the number. You here, I'm here, he said pointing to the door next to mine. I knew my neighbor moved out last week. I didn't hear anyone move in since and I wondered when he had arrived. 
Oh, I didn't hear you move in. I commented thinking that I'd at least have seen him before and now if we had lived next to each other. Not much to move. We stood looking at each other, a bit awkward and both unsure of what else to say. Normally, I was more outgoing than this, but for some reason, this man just threw me off. I opened my door and placed the bags down inside, so I could accept the items that he was still carrying for me. Tell me your name. It sounded like a demand, and I stuttered for a few seconds. Richie. I mentally kicked myself after I spoke. No one called me Richie. I had no idea why that came to mind. Not even my mother shortened my name. I, uh, nice to meet you, mister. It was far too late to correct myself until my name was really Richard. I just asked for his name instead. He froze, looking like a club bouncer who was about to toss out a drunk. It felt like I just made a big mistake. Clearing his throat, I flinched. Dimitri, he said finally. I had a feeling that it was a fake name, just the first one that came to mind. With the kinds of people who lived in this building, I didn't blame him for not wanting anyone to know who he really was. I gave him a smile I hoped didn't look strained. Oh, thank you for helping me, Mr. Uh, Dimitri. He was older than myself, but not that much older to call him Mr. He gave me a stiff nod and left me to go inside his apartment. I went back inside and mentally screamed the entire time that I put my groceries away. I didn't have an explanation to why I was acting so weird around my next door neighbor. There was just something off. Something off about him. I need to put the weird feeling that I got out of my mind. After all, he wasn't nice enough to help me out. I should treat him a bit better the next time that I saw him. The strangeness with Dimitri kept going. The next day, I was awoken by a knock on my door. I never got visitors and I was wary of who it could be. I almost stayed in bed and ignored the knocking but my curiosity got the better of me. Keep the chain on my door. I opened it enough to see my new neighbor waiting for me to open the door. I pushed down the stressed feeling in my gut and I opened it a bit more. Is everything alright? I didn't have a clue what he could need more for. Maybe there was something wrong in his apartment and he couldn't get a hold of our landlord. Give me your work time, Dimitri demanded, and it made me confused on what he meant for a few seconds. After thinking, I realized that he wanted my work schedule. I didn't have set shifts, rather worked whatever they needed me for that week. I, uh, it's on my phone. Do you want me to get your number and I can text you when I'll be at work? I asked. He nodded and I went back inside to retrieve my phone. His looked like a cheap burner phone when he pulled it out from his pocket, so we could exchange numbers. After I sent the text, he nodded, looking my hours over. I suddenly regretted it. It looked like he was planning on using this information for nefarious purposes. Oh, I was really just overthinking it. I work at home very loud, only when you are not home. With that vague explanation, he left me standing in my pajamas, door open and trying to make sense of what he just said. Whatever he did for work, he didn't want to disturb me, 
but also didn't want me hearing anything. That could mean he was into some adult work, or something illegal. He looked more like the mob type, and I leaned more towards that. The first week, I didn't hear a peep from Dimitri's apartment. He was keeping to his promise of not disturbing me with whatever his job was. I saw brief glimpses of him when I was coming back home from work and he was leaving his apartment. He always had a large bag over one shoulder and wearing black leather gloves. I didn't see a motorcycle in the parking lot and wondered if he rode one. When we saw each other, he would give me a curt nod in acknowledgement, and I thought that was how we would treat each other, not speaking and just giving a neighborly nod. He did help me, but he also had a dangerous air about him. Even the attic that hung around the front of the building gave him space when he walked near them. The second time we spoke was because he broke into my apartment, for a good reason that wasn't entirely my fault. I'm starting to wonder if I'm clumsier and just have bad luck. I put a bottle of aspirin on top of the fridge while I was getting things out to start making dinner. I felt a headache slowly creep its way through my brain. I reached over for the bottle of aspirin, only to knock them over. It rolled further back and out of rage. Instead of finding my step stool, I climbed up on the kitchen counter, one arm resting my weight on the cupboard and the other reaching for the bottle. I heard a soft creaking the second everything came tumbling down. My shoddy cupboards were not nailed into the wall properly. Unable to support my weight, it came off of the wall, smashing against my head and spilling its contents on the way down. I felt red starting to pour from the cut in my forehead, and all the air was knocked from my lungs when I fell onto the floor with the cupboard on top of my chest. And without any doubt, the crashing sound of plates and cups breaking would have been heard in the apartments next to mine. I needed to recover before worrying about apologizing for the noise. I stayed down on the floor, head pounding for a while. I felt sick and dizzy from the pain. My cell phone was on the counter and out of rage. I could only hope that the cut was minor. I could not afford a trip to the hospital. Richie. I looked up and the movement killed my head. Dimitri stood in my kitchen doorway, looking down at me. I had locked my apartment, so how did he get in? I... I stopped speaking because the pain was so great. I really didn't need to explain what had happened. It was pretty obvious. He bent over and pushed the cupboard off and crushed glass under his feet while he walked. He easily lifted me off of the ground and helped me out of the room, avoiding broken shards on the floor. Using a dish towel, he cleaned some of the red off my forehead and face. I was not in any state to stop him or even question what he was doing there. I called doctor, Dimitri said, and pulled his phone from his pocket. It looked like a different one than before. I opened my mouth to protest, but one look from his steel gray eyes was enough to shut me up. I sat, holding a damp towel to my head, as he spoke to the doctor in the other end of the phone. Ten minutes, he announced after he had hung up the phone. How did you get in? I finally asked. Lockpick. He did look like the type to know how to pick locks. For the next ten minutes, was him trying to keep me sitting down as he started to clean up the mess that I had made. 
Head wounds, I sure bleed a lot. It looked like something bad had happened in my kitchen and I felt like I would never get the red out of my cheap tile flooring. The doctor arrived and Dimitri let him in. The man pulled up a chair in front of me to get a look at my cut. He set down a bag on the table next to us. He looked like a doctor from the 1800s. His glasses were round and gold-rimmed. He was dressed in a vest with a button-up shirt underneath. His black hair, styled perfectly back in the same way, every man in the 1950s wore it. He took a pen light out from his bag, so at least his tools weren't old-fashioned. He shone it in my eyes and he made me follow it. No brain damage though, that's good. Just a lot of mess on a minor cut. Dimitri could have dealt with this himself, but I suppose he wanted to make sure your brains weren't scrambled. The man introduced himself as Dr. Philo, before sitting down and looking me over. His tone was stern, but somewhat fatherly. I'm sorry to bring you over here. I'm sure this is out of your way and I could have gone to the hospital, I said, suddenly feeling embarrassed. No, no, making house calls are a part of my job. A lot of my patients can't make it to the clinic for various reasons. I winced as he fully cleaned the cuts and started to stitch it up without giving me any warning. It was only three stitches, but it still hurt. Noise came from the kitchen as Dimitri cleaned up the carnage that was once my dishes. He's an alright guy, even if he looks pretty scary. I kept talking, trying to distract myself from the pain. He doesn't look like the type to help out like this. I think he just doesn't want to move again. If you look past what kinds of people live in this area, then this place is pretty good. Cheap rent and close to everything that you need, the doctor explained. When the cut was dealt with, he put his tools back into his leather bag. When the tools were put away, he took out a thermos and a box of cookies. I recognized the store name. I could never afford to buy anything from the bakery that they came from. It was very popular and beyond my budget. He poured a small cup of tea that smelled like flowers. I've never seen a kind of tea that smelled that sweet, and it was pink in color before. Here, drink a little of this and eat something. I have a pill to help you with the pain, but you need to have something in your stomach first. My head did hurt, but it was manageable. I didn't want to bother with extra medicine if I could help it. Trying to get some aspirin got me in this mess to start with. Oh, no, it's fine. It was not fine. Dr. Philo sat, glaring me down with the thermos of tea still in his hand for me to take from him. I realized how rude I was being. He had brought very expensive tea and cookies and I was refusing them. The cookies were the best that I'd ever had and the tea was as sweet as it smelled, but not in overpowering sweetness. I wanted to ask him what brand, but I feared that it would also be out of my budget. I sat sipping away, feeling a bit embarrassed again. I had two strangers in my apartment, because I didn't just go and find something stable to stand on. I would need to think of something to do for Dimitri to thank him for this. When I had finished a few cookies, the doctor gave me a pill to take. I should have been a bit more wary of taking pills from strangers. After all, I didn't actually really know Dimitri. I trusted him and the doctor without a second thought. 
You're going to be asleep for a few hours. If you're working tomorrow, cancel your shift to rest. I'll write you a note if you need one. I opened my mouth up to argue, but that was my last memory of that night. I woke up in the morning, head heavy and very confused at how I got into bed. My messy shirt was missing and I was wearing a new clean one. I sat up, looking around trying to recall anything from the night beyond talking with the doctor. When nothing came to mind, I walked out into the kitchen to see the damage. And I saw nothing. Not even a speck of red on the floor. New cupboards were installed on the walls and I tried to shake them to see if they were fastened tightly this time. I was still missing most of my plates and cups, but I wondered I had slept through someone coming inside the kitchen and replacing the cupboards. I called my boss, telling them that I wouldn't be in that day. I felt fine though, not even a trace of a headache. It was the best sleep that I had had in months. My boss told me that someone had already arranged for me to take the day off. He hung up and didn't elaborate further. My job was very against someone calling in for another person. You could be in a coma but still expected to be the one calling in. I wondered what kind of strings Dimitri pulled to give me the day off. I didn't know when he worked and what times that he was home, but I went next door and knocked hoping that he would be in so that I could thank him. I could have just sent him a text but I felt as if it should be in person. The door opened and he looked down on me. His cold expression never changing. I, uh, thank you for helping out. Did you ask the landlord to replace my cupboards? I said in a small voice. No, I did. Woodworking is a hobby. Overnight, this man rebuilt an entire set of cupboards for a stranger. I tried taking a peek inside of his apartment, but it looked like an identical setup to mine. His hallways had plastic sheets covering the floor, which made sense because he was in the middle of painting. And near the doorway was splashes of dry brown stains along the baseboard that he had yet to cover up. I was about to ask him his renovation plans when he reached out and lightly touched the stitched up cut on my forehead. This is going to scar. Oh, I said adding nothing useful to the conversation. Oh... The second exclamation was because I finally clued into why someone who looked so threatening went out of his way to help me out. My face flushed and I froze, trying to dismiss the thought. He was just a nice guy, that was all. I would be full of myself to ever think that he was interested in me in any way beyond being a friendly neighbor. I stood, staring at him looking like a deer in a pair of headlights. I, uh... I'll make you dinner as a thank you. I stuttered. Mentally, I was screaming at myself because I was making this entire exchange even more awkward. And Dimitri kept his stone-cold expression on his face, not looking to notice my panic. Do you like dogs? The question was so out of the blue that it made me pause. Yes? I'll make you a dog. Go rest. I need to do work. Without any further explanation, Dimitri went back inside his apartment and closed the door. I did pull him away from painting, so I didn't think him suddenly ending the conversation was rude. Trying to think what his last statement meant would drive me crazy. 
I went back into my place, having a few things to think over. First, I needed to figure out what my next door neighbor would eat. He didn't seem to be the type to be picky. The dog comment I had figured out. He said woodworking was his hobby, or maybe he was going to make me a dog out of wood. But why? Just because he has extra material around. The last thought that I was doing my best to push from my mind, I did everything not to think about it. But it kept creeping at the edge of my thoughts and I finally needed to admit defeat. I snapped while staring at pasta, boiling in a pot, completely mortified over the idea my neighbor might like me. Like really like me. I've never been interested in guys before. The problem was, I had never been interested in girls either. I just assumed those feelings would come along when I saw the right woman, and never would have expected to find myself making dinner for my male neighbor. By the time that I had finished dinner and had it packed up to go next door, I came to terms with the facts. Dimitri might be romantically interested in me, or just a nice guy under his cold tone. In our short interactions, I had fallen for him, and was very determined to not do anything about it. I chalked it up to me just being starved for attention. I lacked any friends and due to some long dramatic family history, I wasn't in contact with any of them. In fact, I never really had any close friends. I might just be getting my signals crossed on how I felt due to lack of experience. I brought the still hot pasta over next door and knocked a feeling like I wanted to make a run for it. When the door opened again, I jumped. Unable to say anything, I held out the containers of food. Many thanks. I washed these. Bring back later. Dimitri said with a nod, taking them for me. He sounded as if he was trying his best to hide his accent, as if he didn't want me to know where he is from. No, oh, they're just plastic. You can keep them if you want. I told him with a shake of my head. I now had more plastic Tupperware than real dishes. I washed them. Here is a dog for you. Placing the containers on a table just inside the door, Dimitri picked up a small wooden figure. I held on my hand to take it from him. It was a goofy looking pug carved from wood. Honestly, the details of the wrinkles were impressive. I thanked him again and realized every time that we met, I always had something to thank him for. In his cold manner, he shooed me away. Go rest. I work. Again, the door was shut on my face without me minding in the slightest. The next few weeks, I made a habit of bringing dinner over to my neighbor and on occasion, he made small dogs to add to my growing collection. Our exchanges were brief and I didn't learn anything new about him, aside from the fact that he was really slow at painting. Every time that he opened the door to his apartment, I could see that his floor was still covered in plastic. My shifts at work became more regular. Instead of just coming in when I needed, I had a set schedule. It meant that I could budget my finances better. If I saved, I could move into a better area of town or closer to my job. I wasn't sure if I really wanted to move just yet, and decided to just keep saving money to think about it in the future. Feeding a second person really wasn't an issue because it was cheaper to buy food in bulk to start with. I was finally getting into a routine and my life felt like it was turning around after years of struggling. I had made a friend, 
even if he was a bit strange and had a steady job. Things might have worked out just fine if my job didn't give me a surprise day off. A pipe had burst in the restaurant so they needed to close over the weekend to fix it and get everything cleaned up. I never got Fridays off and was at a loss of what to do. Dimitri wasn't expecting me to be home or to get dinner that night. I had enough rice to make curry for two, so I decided to drop some by regardless of if he was expecting it or not. I heard Dimitri's voice from outside so I knew he was just getting home, but I thought I had heard another person. Just as I was putting the curry into a container to bring it over, I heard a loud thud from his place and I jumped. I strained to listening, trying to figure out what the source of the sound was. I stood as still as possible, trying to hear something over my beating chest, but the next sound was muffled. I could have sworn that I heard a scream. On reflex, I grabbed the containers of food. I rushed over, not even bothering to close my door. Outside of his apartment, I slipped in some liquid, and my heart sank when I saw that it was a dark red. I was in a panic when I noticed his door wasn't closed all the way. Dimitri looked as if he could handle himself, but all of these were bad signs. Without even thinking, I rushed inside his place, still holding the hot containers. My feet slipped again on the plastic covering the floor, but I froze when I saw what I had just stumbled into. My brain just would not register what I was seeing for a few moments. I knew that I was looking at Dimitri from his frame, but not by his face. I only saw it for a few seconds, but the image is burned into my memory. His face was split open horizontally. Thousands of needle-like teeth along the slit of a mouth glimmered in the dim light of his apartment. His eyes warped and twisted from his monstrous face locked onto me. The terrifying mouth closed in seconds after we made eye contact. His face returning to normal, but with his mouth slightly open at a loss for words. The other person in the room looked equally shocked. The other man was on his knees. Dimitri pulling his head back by his short hair to expose his neck, with a large hunting knife to his throat. The knife was serrated and made for killing, and besides this, a different man was on the floor face down, fresh red liquid still pooling around him and over the clear plastic. You do not work tonight, Dimitri asked, breaking the silence. The man with the knife to his neck said nothing. His eyes wide and pleading. I couldn't bring myself to look at him for more than a few seconds. The smell of copper was in the air, making me feel sick. The heat from the container started to hurt my hands, but I didn't dare move. Knowing that I couldn't answer his first question, Dimitri nodded towards the hot curry containers. What do you have? He slowly asked. Curry. Enough for two. I normally gave him enough for two meals because he was a bigger guy than myself. I always assumed that he ate more. Even while I spoke my mind, screamed at me to run, that I witnessed what my kind neighbor had just done, and what he was about to do to another man if I hadn't stopped him. I dreaded that I was going to be next. I had seen what happened and needed to be taken care of. All the hints I had brushed off came crashing down on my mind. The sketchy doctor, 
how easy he could clean up my apartment. The plastic sheets and never the smell of paint. How often he moved. Everything was staring me in the face, but I was so desperate for a friend that I ignored all the red flags. I held back a noise of fear when Dimitri let go of the man and pushed him aside. In a few steps, he was in front of me, his tall figure looming. The knife was still in his hand, but pointed down. I knew if he wanted to, he could get rid of me in a blink of an eye. I flinched. A small sound escaping me when it raised a hand and ran a thumb over where my stitches had been. And did not scar badly. Getting down on my level, he leaned over so his face was close to mine. I felt my muscles turn to stone as I looked into his steel gray eyes. The eyes of a killer looking me over and deciding my fate. My hand started to shake and I almost dropped the food. Dimitri placed a hand on top to steady the containers. I was so convinced that this was going to be the end that I nearly passed out. Still friends. His voice was low and had a hint of worry in it. My heart was so loud that I nearly didn't hear him. Friends. He wanted to know if I was still going to act friendly around him. I risked a look over his shoulder and at the man who looked as scared as I was. I made my choice. I nodded. If I kept my mouth shut, I would live. After I nodded, he took the curry from my hands and stood up. You, table. We eat dinner. Richie, best go back home. He didn't need to tell me twice. Without looking back, I turned on my heels and left. I made sure the door was fully closed behind me and cut my eyes straight, not looking down at the liquid on the floor. I took off my now red-stained socks and threw them in the trash without any hesitation. My cell phone sat on the counter. I looked at it, debating on what I wanted to do. I should call the cops. I just witnessed something horrible. My next-door neighbor had killed someone. Without any doubt, he had done it before, too. And he would keep doing it unless he was arrested and stopped. I couldn't believe the supernatural aspect of what I saw. I could believe in murder, but not split-face monsters. My hand hovered over my phone as I repeated the facts inside my head. I let out a yell of frustration and walked away from my phone. I paced around my apartment for hours, the portion of curry I saved for myself getting cold on the stove. Every time that I got close to calling the cops, I just couldn't bring myself to go through with it. After a while, I heard a knock on my door, and all the fear came rushing back. It could only be one person. He knew that I was home, so no sense on trying to hide from him. Cautiously, I opened the door. To my shock, the man who Dimitri was about to attack when I walked in was still alive. His face bruised, but he was breathing. We wanted to thank you for dinner. My friend will be leaving. The man gave me a nod, his face pale and hands shaking at his side. Still friends? Dimitri asked me again. Still friends? I confirmed with a small nod. That was enough for him. He took the man by his arm and dragged him down the hallway. If he was going to let him go free or kill him somewhere else, it was a mystery that I would never know the answer to. I never ended up calling the police or telling anyone what I saw. I saw Dimitri a few times in the hallway in passing, but his face looked strained, 
He knew that I wasn't going to get him arrested. It was far too late by now. He would have covered his tracks and I doubted the cops would take me seriously. Any normal person would have done the right thing and gone to the cops right away. I felt pretty guilty for not doing so. Instead of moving or suggesting to Dimitri that he should leave, I did something I don't regret. I brought over another meal for him. His face a bit shocked to see me knocking on his door with a smile on my face and food in my hands. We were still friends after all and I was going to treat him almost the same as I did before. Gathering up my courage, I offered him the food and asked something I had wanted to for a while. Do you want to eat together? He nodded his head, this time the one being unsure of what to say. My neighbor is a killer. And well, something not human if those few seconds of memories are real. But oddly enough, I really don't mind. I've been pretty lonely for years and eating a meal with someone is something I desperately want. Murderer or not. Human or not. At least he was nice enough to sit and eat with me as I talk about my day. I'm never taking a shortcut through the woods again. Written by 02321 I grew up in a farming town where there was only one high school and the middle school was right next to it. Normally students are picked up by bus because of how far apart everyone lived from each other. But I walked home. I got car sick easy and threw up on the bus a few times before my parents agreed that I could take a shortcut through the woods. And it was faster than riding the bus. I didn't need to wait for the other kids to be dropped off. I could just head home after school and watch my favorite cartoon in time instead of only catching the ending theme song if I took the bus. I also thought myself of somewhat more mature than my classmates being trusted to get home on my own. The woods scared some of them, but not myself. I grew up being surrounded by trees and never saw anything strange. Until the day that made me beg my parents to put me back on the bus. I was always warned to be careful of wild animals while walking home. As far as I knew, there wasn't anything that could scoop me up and drag me into the wood, never to be seen again besides a person. And my town had no abduction since my grandparents' time. The only danger was going off the trail and inside the woods, which everyone thought I was smart enough not to do. I proved them wrong. I was walking home with my heavy backpack, taking the trail that I had took over a hundred times before. I spotted something on the path and quickened my pace to see what it was. In the middle of the path was a high heel shoe. A dark red and heels so high, I wondered how anybody could walk in them. I've seen weird stuff left on the trail but nothing like this before. I didn't feel right touching it. The owner would be back for it, wouldn't they? And it was only one shoe. What was I going to do with a single shoe? Looking over, I noticed something else. A few feet off of the trail was a red handbag hanging from a tree branch. I got a cold feeling that spread through my body. Even my small town brain knew something wasn't right. I should have just left and called someone to come over and take a look at it. 
like the police in case someone dragged a woman into the woods to do her harm. But so far, I had no proof of that. Just a handbag and a shoe. No drag marks, no recent footprints on the trail. I did something that I regret. I walked towards the purse to get a better look, wading through the bushes and being careful not to get caught on any thorns. I walked over to the purse and reached my hand out to take it before stopping myself. I had seen enough cop shows to know not to touch things related to a crime. I wanted to look inside of the purse to see if there was some ID to figure out who it belonged to. And then I got angry at myself for nearly doing something so stupid. A sound out in the distance of the woods made me jump a little. It was a small yipping sound. My mother said there was coyotes in the forest, but I have never seen them. Just heard them on occasion. It was time to leave. I would report this when I got home. I turned around and my heart sank when I didn't see the trail. I calmed down telling myself the woods just looked different from where I was standing. I just needed to walk back the way that I came and I would get back onto the trail that was hidden by the bushes. Slowly, I started to walk, being careful not to get hooked by branches and prickly thorns. When I didn't see a hint of the trail, I started to move faster, not caring so much about getting scratched. I didn't understand it. I didn't even go that far. I should be hitting the hiking trail any second now. But I didn't. I looked behind me seeing if I somehow went a different direction, and my body turned to ice when I didn't see the purse that should be hanging from the branch where I left it. Nothing made any sense. I couldn't get lost like this. No one did. It was a straight path with no turns, just a minute inside the bush. It was as if the woods moved while I wasn't looking to swallow me up. But that was impossible, right? I looked around, trying not to give in to panic. I heard the best thing to do is to just stay in one spot. My parents would notice me missing in an hour or so and I needed to wait for them to send help. I did another thing that I regret. In the distance, I saw a movement between the trees. A figure just walked off in the distance. My heart kept at the sight of a person that could help me. Hey! I cried out and they didn't stop walking. I waved and yelled some more, hoping that they would hear me. I couldn't make them out very well, but I guess that it looked like a tall something man. Not wanting to risk losing my chance at help, I ran forwards, yelling at them, begging them to stop. I was so desperate that I didn't notice how the woods were starting to look different around me, at least not at first. As I scrambled, trying to reach the man, I could just see leaves start to flutter down around me. Golden leaves that looked out of season. It was spring and yet the further that I walked into the woods, the more the trees changed color. I finally stopped, my backpack heavy and weighing me down. My legs hurt from rushing through the woods. While taking a break, feeling at a loss because I could no longer see the man that I was following, I finally noticed the color of the leaves. It looked like I had just walked right out of spring and into autumn colors. What the... I asked myself as more golden leaves tumbled down. It was only then that the fact that something was very wrong started to sink in. 
I fully planned on staying put to think of a better plan when I heard a voice. A human voice. I was sure of it. I didn't make out what was said. I was going to try and find that person who just spoke and if I couldn't, I would do the wise thing and stay still. Making my way through the woods with leaves crunching under my feet, I listened for any other signs of people being around. I didn't see any more articles of clothing and nearly gave up when I heard some whispering. Pushing forward following the noise, I stumbled into a clearing and into a sight I wish I never saw. Something that would be in my nightmares for the rest of my life. As far as my eyes could see, there were pale bumps in the dirt. My mind refused to comprehend what I was looking at, no matter how clear it was. I wanted to trick myself into thinking that I was looking at hundreds, if not thousands, of masks on the ground. I was not so lucky. My mouth opened, but no scream would come out. I was in such a state of terror that I was beyond any kind of words. It felt like all the liquid in my veins drained from my entire body from the sheer fear at the sight before me. Faces with closed eyes lined up in some cluster together, all facing upwards towards the sky. Heads. So many heads in that cleared field. All shapes and sizes from so many different people. I nearly got sick when I saw the nearest one to me was a cleanly cut at the neck. These heads didn't have any bodies attached to them. I just didn't understand how there were so many. I mean, surely someone would notice too many people missing their heads. I understood less when the one that I was staring down at opened its eyes. Gray pupils looked over towards me. Slowly, the face turned into one looking as if it was the same amount of fear that I was in. The head didn't have lungs, but it screamed. It screamed so loud that I placed my hands over my ears. And then the one next to it did the same and it started to scream as well. Soon, so many of these heads were screaming, it was nearly deafening, even with my hands trying to block out the sound. I had to look away from the gruesome sight and then, I spotted him. A tall man. A corpse, really. One that looked dried up with its brown flesh clinging to its bones. It had wrapped a dirty sheet around its waist. In one hand, it held a long pole with a hook on the end. Even though I was in a field of heads, this corpse did not have one. Where the head should be was a pile of fresh flowers. It took a step towards me, being careful not to step on one of these screaming faces. I couldn't handle it anymore and I ran for my life. My heavy bag slamming against my back every step but I wasn't in the right state of mind to take it off. The corpse took off after me, his long legs able to catch up without any issue. I glanced over my shoulder and saw it closing in, hand outstretched, reaching for me. It would have caught me too if I didn't dart between two trees, so close together that it could not follow. It was bone thin, but it had wide shoulders. It slammed into the trees, hand reaching out and fingertips brushing against my neck. Flowers tumbled from the pile, showing off a ragged cut neck. If it was smart, it would have used the hook on a pole to catch me, but maybe it was just slow thinking without its head. 
I kept running as the creature struggled out from between the trees and lost ground on catching up to me. I ran too scared to look back until I couldn't run any longer. I could still hear these screams over my heavy breathing and beating heart. I never should have wandered off the path. Just sitting and waiting was no longer an option. That headless corpse would catch up to me at any moment. As long as I kept moving away from the screaming, I should be fine. At least I hoped that that was the case. My lungs still burned, but I kept moving. I couldn't afford to stand still. As I walked, I felt a chill in the air. The woods started to change around me again. It got so cold that I wrapped my arms around myself, trying to stay warm. In a few short minutes, I was in an area of the woods that I had never seen before, with rocks and boulders sticking through the ground. No leaves remained in the trees. And then came the tears, threatening to make me stop moving altogether. I thought that I was in the clear for a little bit. There was no sign of the headless corpse and I no longer heard screaming. The sky was overcast and I shook from the cold and fear. I debated on if I should turn around. If I stayed out where I was for too long, I would freeze to death. My teeth chattered and I stopped to rub my eyes. When I looked up, my heart nearly stopped. The corpse was coming from behind a boulder and right for me. I screamed then and I ran a few steps. I was only moving for a few seconds until my feet no longer held anything under them. The woods around me changed yet again, this time to a rocky cliff that I just stopped short of. I saw the world shift around me but I couldn't do anything about it. I stopped, staring in horror as the trees hundreds of feet below convinced I was about to die. And then I felt a pain from my backpack straps digging into my arms. My fall was stopped shortly after it started. I gripped these straps of my bag knowing that it caught on something and that I was still alive. With my legs dangling and my heart pounding so hard, it made my head hurt. I looked up to see that the corpse had saved me. He used the hook pole he carried to catch the loop on my back and I heard a ripping sound. The small strap of fabric was not meant to support so much weight. In one swift motion, he pulled his pole up and myself back on the solid ground. I was shaking too much to run from the creature. Frantically, it ran its hands over me as if checking that I was all in one piece. It was hard to tell what it was feeling because of the lack of a face. But I was so tired from my ordeal that I just let it. It had lost most of the flowers from chasing me and leaning over the cliff to save me. I felt sick looking into the hole of a nag. When he figured that I was fine, or at least fine enough, the corpse roughly took my hand. I was being dragged along for a few minutes until my legs finally gave way. I was a child when this happened and everything was far too much for me to handle. The corpse stopped expecting me to stand back up, but it didn't. I sat on the ground and started to let out a wailing cry that hurt my chest. It stood and waited, still gripping my hand. Again, it was impossible to tell what it was thinking, if it was even thinking at all. When I settled down a little, the corpse picked me up and tucked me under its arm and started carrying me along. It smelled a bit, the flower scent remaining but with a rotting smell underneath. 
I was too weak to struggle or try and stop what was happening. I just accepted being carried until my mind would work again. It walked along and the wood started to shift back to the autumn colors, and then back to the green leaves of spring. I felt hope surge through me when I saw a flash of red through the trees. We walked by the red purse still hanging from the branch that I had left it on, and it didn't even slow down. When we made it back in the trail, I was finally put down. I opened my mouth to speak, but nothing came out. The thing didn't have ears, so I didn't think that it could hear me either way. Reaching out a dead hand, it clumsily placed it on my head and messed up my hair. I stood stunned from it, and then walked over to the red high heel and picked it up, and I watched it go back off into the woods and collect the purse as well. Even though I wanted to get the heck out of those woods, I stayed standing in that same spot for a long time. When I did get home, I saw that I had been lost for very long. I didn't tell my parents what had happened and just said that I had tripped and that's why I was so dirty. The only proof of what had happened was the loop on my backpack now hanging by a thread. The very next day, I asked my parents to see if I could take the bus again. Until I did, I started to take the long way too and from school refusing to ever go in those woods again. Strange Happenings Between States on Interstate 10 Written by Finn Jones This happened to me a few years back. Background, I grew up near Los Angeles and then moved to Phoenix, Arizona in search of lower rent. Phoenix is fun, but I often miss home. I fly or drive back every other month to hang out with my friends and my brother, Ethan. It's about a five-hour journey, and there's always a point in the drive where I look around, check my mirrors, and realize that I'm completely alone. No other cars on the road, and tens of miles yawning between myself and civilization. I look to the mountains on the horizon and my stomach drops. Vertigo hits, knowing that I'm completely lost to civilization, and that I could have a heart attack from anxiety and help wouldn't come for hours. I just don't trust myself not to lose my mind, strip off my clothes and run wild into the dust and withered plants. And who would know where I was? How long would it take to find my body? All I can do is hold my breath, grip the wheel and wait, hope for my return to the real world. There's about a five mile stretch in the road too, where my unease always intensifies. Maybe those familiar with the Interstate 10 between California and Arizona will know what I'm talking about. It's marked by a single saguaro cactus, standing alone, way out in the west after you've left the crowds of them around Phoenix behind. I wonder if someone planted it there on purpose, to mark a border. There are four things that I often experience on this stretch of the road and only there. Dead livestock, weird billboards, payphone booths, and the radio station. And I'm not the only one who's seen them, so I know I'm not hallucinating. On drives where I'm joined by friends or my brother Ethan, 
I voided and let them point the weird out to me, confirming that I'm not imagining these things. I wouldn't think anything of a pig or a cow on the side of the road in some parts of the country, but there aren't any farms anywhere near this highway. It's just a desolate wasteland as far as the eye can see. I guess they must have been tossed from the back of a truck, having passed while being transported, but I see at least one of them every drive. I suppose the heat does them in. Clearly they don't have proper shade or enough water. Who's stupid enough to keep making the same mistake? And the billboards seem to have moved every time that I pass by. They're those huge, 100 foot long ones you see when coming into an urban hub. The images of them, like software generated. As in, there are suggestions of things that might be spaces, or limbs or plant life. But there isn't quite enough of any single object to identify it. It's hard to explain, but they just leave your brain gasping, feeling out of breath. So yeah, since they don't seem to be advertising anything, I'm thinking that they must be someone's art project. Heck, you know there are a ton of artists in California. And these structures, though they appear to be made of steel, are actually a light material, suited to temporary installation. I don't get a lot of installation art, but I get this. Man, those boards just make you feel something. They tower above and throw the car into shadow as you pass by. These monoliths, vertical in the middle of the plains. Something about them just makes you shiver. I did a few Google searches but couldn't find anything about them online. I really would like to know the artist if anyone can hit me up with the details. I realize as I write this how stupid it is that I've never taken a picture of one. But since these signals whack out there in the wilderness, my phone's usually out of reach in the back until I've returned to the real world and stopped at a gas station. I always assumed the phone booths were related to the billboard art, but since the incident, I'm not so sure. They usually show up a few hundred yards from the road, and you can spot them lit up, all ghostly, in the distance if you drive by after sunset. Before my close encounter, I always meant to get out and investigate these, but then I always set out from Phoenix later than I planned. I'm always running late and the scorching heat outside the car isn't very inviting anyway. The radio station is what makes the drive fun with a friend. Although I was alone, when I first discovered it, it seriously freaked me out. I was going Cali to Arizona way, searching stations around 99 megahertz when it made itself known in a roar of laughter. And that's pretty much all that it ever plays. Laughter. Like the laugh track between jokes on a sitcom. Men and women's voices blaring suddenly and then quickly stopping. Of course, most stations gradually decline in quality as you drive out of range. This one just cuts out completely the moment I drive past that lonely cactus. And the laughter always pauses where character dialogue should be. Me and Ethan have made a game of filling the gaps with our own dialogue, but a lot of our lines are too R-rated for the average sitcom. So yeah, it's fun with a friend but unsettling when you're on your own in that void between states. There are definitely other sounds in the background, murmuring and sloshing water. Me and my buddies have tried to catch these hidden words but with little luck, 
and Bianca is convinced she heard the word Talon once, but Corey insists that it was Felon. So yeah, we got nothing. When I do the drive alone, I usually just put on my own music. Before you ask, yes, I've heard of those Russian number stations and yeah, I think it could be something similar. A soundscape where coded messages can be hidden. All of this is definitely strange but explainable. Just because it's a mystery, that doesn't mean it's something supernatural or sinister. But I'm here to talk about that incident of a few years ago. I usually try not to think about it, but I've had a few beers this evening and it's all coming to the surface. I was driving to Cali on a Thursday afternoon. I had Friday off work and I was looking forward to a long weekend. The skies were deep blue and I had plenty of snacks for the road. I was in good spirits. The car was a bit of a mess. My brother had left some of his things in the back and for reasons unknown to me, it reeked of fast food grease. But I knew the road well and savored all of my favorite sights. A mountain on the right that looks like a sleeping cat. A beat up old gas station like something from an old movie. A couple of hours later I passed that lone cactus. It was casting a long shadow. I suppose that I was feeling daring, because as soon as I had passed it, I started searching for that secret station. Soon enough, the laughter flared up. I snorted too, a sort of relieving tension. I said a few of our old lines from me and my brother's made-up sitcom and as always, the audience enjoyed them, laughing uproariously. I left a blank line between each of my own, as if absent Ethan was responding. Say, hey, Josephine, have you been drinking that radioactive tea again? You look awful. Laughter chimed in. You're just not the genetically modified alpaca woman I married anymore. We're through, you hear me. And so on. Stupid stuff, but fun. The sun was setting, everything glowing in fiery colors, when I saw the phone booth. It was right next to the road. I had never seen one so close before. Checking my rearview mirror, there were no cars behind me, of course. I stepped on the brake. I pulled over in the glow of the booth, admiring it. The sickly green light inside flickered slightly, but really, it was a wonder it had any power at all. I wound down the window and the desert air was like hot breath on my face. I leaned out, already starting to sweat mesmerized by this ridiculous, impractical art piece. And then right on cue, it rang. Somehow I was expecting it, but still my heart was pounding, almost painful. I was rattled, knowing my presence had been detected. I took a deep breath and got out of the car, looking around carefully for a camera. I took a few steps towards the phone and then, bang, I spun around. A metallic impact. Something had struck the car. It was still bouncing slightly on its suspension. Breath rattling, sweat running down my back. I circled the vehicle. There was nothing. No dents in the body, nothing on the ground, no one there. Thank God. But what had happened? A change in temperature, some internal breakage. The phone was still ringing. And how? Surely, the day's sun should have cooked its circuits to dust. 
I stepped inside. It was a baking between those plexiglass walls, but I closed the door behind me. I didn't want to touch that receiver. It brought me back to a biology class, trying to prick my own fingertip with a needle to draw cells for a microscope. I knew that I had to do it, but my body was telling me no. I reached slowly and then slower, like time inside the box was thickening, pausing with my hand and hovering over the receiver. And then something let go, and I snatched it up and held it to my ear. There was rustling, a somewhat familiar voice in the background of what I could hear from the echo was a tiled air room. And then the caller spoke. Hey, who's this? It was my brother's voice. Impossible. I struggled for air, confused. This was beyond the scope of an art piece. Greeting, stranger. He said cheerfully. Are you pranking me or did you butt dial? Ethan? I croaked. He cursed very faintly. The air frothed with panic for a moment and then he hung up. I put the phone down and just stood there for a while. Everything was silent except the pounding in my ears. I wanted to tell myself that it was all a weird dream, but I knew better. I ran back to the car, jumped as the headlights flared and the speakers came alive with laughter. The sound was deafening. I was sure that I had turned the radio off. I wiped sweat off my forehead, feverish, convinced the car itself was laughing at me. Despite the desert heat, my hairs were standing on end. Certain that I was being watched, toyed with, I got back in the car. The sooner that I got out of there, the better. I floored it and sped off into the dusk. I tried taking deep breaths to calm myself, but spasms of fear kept shaking my ribcage, undoing my efforts. After a while, my body simply ran out of adrenaline. Exhausted, dry mouth, I reached for my water bottle in the back seat, accidentally knocking Ethan's glasses to the floor. His glasses? How the heck did he leave those behind? And then came searing white panic. I remembered setting off from Phoenix. Ethan was with me. He had come to stay in mine and we were going back to California together. It all came rushing back. Pointing out the cat-shaped mountain to each other, his story about his housemate, him begging me to stop and buy him lunch, and then me scolding him when he dropped fries down the side of the seat. The dialogue that we had performed with the laugh track. And then dual, simultaneous memories of my journey alone. It's hard to explain this overlap. It was like nothing I've ever experienced before. So where was he now? My first instinct was to go back. Why would he have gotten out of the car? Why couldn't I remember it? The worst thought was that I might have thrown him out. Done something to him somehow. I've never in my life wanted to do anything to my little brother. But then I seemed to have completely lost my mind. I couldn't be sure of anything. I checked my phone. No signal. If I went back and found him, would I try to do the same thing again? I drove on, lost. Away from any other witnesses, the landscape just wasn't real. My single gaze wasn't enough to make it solid and whole. 
I had caught the land unprepared, so the road in the yellow-gray ground was just a thin membrane, with nothing underneath that layer of dust and soil. I was sobbing. Certain the car wheels were skimming a fragile shell, and I was about to slip through into a hollow void of incomplete terrain. My legs went numb. There wasn't enough gravity. At some point, I think I decided that I needed help before I went to find Ethan. I wasn't even sure my memories of him being there were real. I prayed they were just a paranoid delusion, that my brother was safe and sound, cooking dinner and just hanging out in his apartment. A wind turbine in the distance told me that I was getting close to my destination. Bianca had invited me to stay at her place. I pulled up on the drive. Headlights were flattening in the glossy window pane of the doorway. As I turned off the engine and stepped out, I saw her come running to the window, eyes wide. She was scrambling at the door as I approached. It burst open. Jesus, Sam, where have you been? Ethan! She yelled back into the house. He's here? Ethan's here? She nodded and threw her arms around me. I could breathe again. I had her back elated. He was safe. I had only left him there in the desert in my sick imagination. He was there. He clapped me on the shoulder and dark shadows under his eyes saying, Come on dude, where have you been? And he looked over my shoulder. How did you get here? I laughed. I was so relieved to see him and what was he talking about? I drove, I said raising my eyebrows and indicating the silver Honda on the drive. But he just looked at me like I was the one fooling around. I saw him get out of that car, Bianca said, pointing at the car and then the keys in my hand. Then where's the car that I got here in? Ethan asked. Did you rent the same car? Before I could ask what he meant by that, Bianca said, I better let everybody know that you're okay. It turned out that they had reported me missing. Once I had called my parents to promise them that I was okay and that I would explain everything later, we gathered around Bianca's kitchen island. With a much-needed glass of whiskey in hand, we tried to make sense of things. The first shock was learning that it was Sunday. Four days had passed since I set up from Phoenix and I had no memory of them. Our phones, Bianca's laptop, and the local TV news confirmed the date. How is that possible? I asked, thinking of the single bottle of water in the back seat of my car. The tank with plenty of gas left in it. I can't explain it, said Ethan. But we set off together on Thursday evening, right? Right, I said, realizing those memories of the drive with him must have been real. We stopped at McDonald's. Ethan arrived at Bianca's early on Friday morning looking scared. His memory of the drive was quite lucid up until the weird zone, where he recalls that we drove up to a phone booth beside the road. He said the phone inside was ringing. I watched you pick up the phone, he said. A few seconds went by and then you just slumped to the ground like you had been knocked out. I remember yelling out and then nothing. At some point I woke up and I was driving. At first, I kind of laughed like, oh, come on, don't fall asleep, dude. But then it all came back to me. I remember we set off together and started panicking, wondering where the heck you were. 
I turned the car around and looked for the phone box, but I came all the way up to that lone cactus and I didn't see anything. After that, I just floored it to LA. I don't know. I thought that I should get help. Wait, you were driving my car? Yeah. My car, the one that I just arrived in. He just nodded and necked his drink. It was parked in the drive since Friday, said Bianca, watery-eyed. And then I looked out just now to see you getting out of it. So it, like, overlapped. I... There was a buzz in my pocket. I stopped to check who was calling. The screen was lit up with unknown caller. Usually, I would let that go to voicemail, but since I had apparently been lost in another dimension for several days, I answered. Hello? Silence. I waited, noting absentmindedly that Ethan was answering a call too. And then laughter erupted from the phone in my ear. A crowd of people laughing like between jokes on a sitcom. In the laugh track gap where the character's line would be, I heard Ethan say, Hey, who's this? A pause and then, Greetings, stranger. Are you pranking me or did you butt dial? My hand was shaking. I knew who was on the other end of that call. My brother cursed and looked at me in a panic. It's been three days since my best friend went missing. Yesterday, he awakened inside of my head. Written by Trash Tia Let me start by saying that I'm not the smart friend. If I'm being honest, I don't even know how I got into this college. Pure luck, maybe. Some kind of astronomical event caused by these stars aligning, I don't know. The point is, I'm dumb. Maybe not completely dumb. I managed a three-point-something in high school, and the only reason that I'm here is on a conditional offer that I would be Einstein by the holidays. Rory, on the other hand, he is the smart friend. I've known him since our freshman year of high school, and since then we've been inseparable. You know that bond you have with a friend? The one that you're sure will last a lifetime. And you both joke that you'll grow old together and attend each other's funerals. That was Rory. I was sure. So sure that we were in it for the long run. It was Rory's idea to attend the same college together, and I just sort of went along with it. I do that a lot. I go along with a lot of the stuff that he says because I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. He's always been there since we were kids. Rory was the smart one my parents secretly wished was their son, and I would be awkwardly standing next to him when they practically begged him to tutor me when I was failing. It was his idea to come to the same college. That was our plan. The one he had meticulously thought out and went through. I would study photography and media, since it's the only thing that I seem to be good at. And Rory, English. He's wanted to be a writer for as long as I can remember. On the day that we met, he shoved a 15-page manuscript that he had written at the back of his workbooks and told me that it would be a hit one day. Spoiler alert, it was. Well, sort of. 
It wasn't exactly published and turned into a real bug, but the story was picked up by the drama teacher who transformed it into a play. He was the smartest kid in our year, and I took pride in saying that Rory was my best friend. He wasn't a stereotypical nerd either. Rory managed to juggle multiple extracurriculars, and he was the head of the school newspaper, and it made Varsity Captain. It's weird. It was like he was a superhuman. I used to remember watching him tearing up the football field in our junior year, knocking down everyone in his path. Sometimes it looked like he wasn't even touching them. The players would just fly across the field once they hit Rory's vicinity. When the two of us started college, we were roommates and in the first few weeks, things seemed to go great. It sounds kind of pathetic, but we did everything together, just like we had our whole lives. It was only when we had started classes when everything sort of blew up in my face. I knew that Rory would find a new friend somehow. He's the extrovert while I'm the introvert. He went out partying and somehow maintaining perfect grades, while I preferred to stay in my room and study until I was passing out on my laptop and still failing. I would go into detail about myself, but there's not much to say. I've already told you most of it. The only thing you need to know is that I'm not smart. I am nothing like Rory. So, it was inevitable that he would start making like-minded new friends, especially in his classes. And he did. But the thing is, Rory was secretive about these friends. When I asked about them, he shrugged and said that they were just classmates. He started going out more and more, and disappearing at night and failing to come back until midday. I knew that he was going out to meet them. It's not like I cared at that point, because I wanted him to branch out. I wanted him to make new friends. I didn't want him cooped up with me all the time, and there were times when he actually did want to stay in. The times we did hang out are some of my favorite memories. We would get a crate of beers and play Mario Kart all night. I asked him to invite his new friends, but Rory said that they wouldn't want to play. He said, according to them, it was a kid's game, and any adult who played it was immature. So, I quickly concluded that Rory's new friends were really pretentious. I shouldn't have been surprised, though. They were English students, after all. At first, Rory agreed with me, eagerly telling me through spoonfuls of cereal how stuck up his friends were. He liked to laugh at them, poking fun at how they took everything so seriously. Though, as the weeks went by, he stopped. Rory stopped talking about them. When I asked if they were being the same, he didn't answer. It was then when I started to notice a change in Rory. I've always seen him as a sort of human golden retriever. He was always smiling. His eyes always lit up with that same optimistic energy I could only dream about having. Rory was always there for me. When I was failing, he would sit and go through every mistake I had made thoroughly and then test me on it. He never judged me, and when he did, he was only joking around. When he started hanging out with his new friends, though... He started to get egotistical. He loudly complained about other students' grades, 
either that they were playing awful or that they were catching up to his. Apparently, he had a rival in the class, and that so-called rival was driving him insane, keeping him up all night hammering away at his laptop until dawn. I don't even think he blinked. Rory started to dress differently, swiping his casual wardrobe for fancy white shirts and pants. He started caring a lot more about his appearance, exchanging the usual knitted beanie he always wore for a far more sophisticated look. I jokingly asked him if he was in some kind of cult, like a twisted dead poet society. Though Rory just gave me a long look, eyes narrowed, lips curled, like it was taking all of his patience to listen to me. I started to feel like I was lesser than him. It was what I had feared growing up with him, that one day he would turn around and look at me like I was filth stuck at the bottom of his shoe. When I told him that I was failing one of my photography projects, instead of frowning and telling me that he would help, Rory scoffed and shook his head, like he was expecting it, like he already knew. And then he told me that he was at the top of his class, and that his professor had labeled his work exceptional. Otherworldly. Rory liked to brag that he was good friends with his professor, and I was happy for him. But when he was going out to dinner with these new friends, and then hanging out with the professor out of class, I figured that was a little weird. I didn't say anything, because when I did, Rory would turn it back on me, like I was the paranoid one for asking. He started insulting me. When I somehow managed to lose the presentation that I had been working on, I asked him for help. Rory just rolled his eyes with a smirk. He looked down at me. You really are an idiot, aren't you? His tone had caught me off guard. It was cruel. I waited for him to laugh and shoot me a grin, but he didn't. He had meant it. At that point, I didn't know what to say. I wanted to pretend that he was joking, but I knew from the gleam in his eye that he wasn't. He wanted me to hear it and to hurt. He wanted me to feel like the inferior one, the unintelligent lesser than friend. Rory had promised our whole lives, no matter where he went that he would take me with him. We had made that promise after a football game, and toasted our decision with lukewarm beer and burgers. I didn't want to believe that he had thrown all of that away. All those ideas and dreams we had of living together in an apartment in New York. Even if I was in denial though, I knew what was going on. Rory's new friends were bad news. They had turned him into carbon copies of them. An egotistical, awful person that I couldn't stand being around. And worse, he was a stranger. I hated that. I hated that Rory had become someone I couldn't even recognize anymore. This back and forth continued and we started to drift apart. I knew it was coming so it wasn't that painful when Rory said he would be moving out of our shared room and into another building. Things weren't exactly great between us beforehand. I was focusing on my studies a lot so I barely saw him. And when I did see him, on the rare occasions he actually came back. He would stumble into our room in the pitch dark, stinking of stale alcohol and cigarettes and collapsing in bed. And I just called him an a-hole. He would laugh and slur something back at me. And that was our friendship.
It had always been our friendship, teasing and joking with each other. When Rory moved out, I never saw him. We still texted, but barely. I would message him in the morning, and I would only get his response at the end of my classes. It wasn't much of anything, just a generic, Sup, how are you doing? I had to force myself not to say what was on my mind. That I missed him. I was going crazy without him. He was the only reason that I came to college in the first place. But of course, I couldn't say that. So I just said that I was fine and that classes were good. He didn't message me back until around 2am the following night. The texturing tone startled me out of slumber. When I groggily picked up the phone, a single notification sat at the top of the screen. Rory, one minute ago. Do you remember that game we used to play when we were kids? We would sit on Miss Perry's wall and pretend to fall off and almost gave the poor woman a heart attack. That's my favorite memory of me and you. I've been thinking about it a lot. The stuff we got up to. Also, what about the time that your mom made pumpkin pie and I knocked it off the table? I thought she was going to ban me from your house. I miss your mom's pumpkin pie. I miss the smell of it, the taste. I miss sitting at your kitchen table and listening to MCR. I miss summers when we would hang out all day and go to the lake. You remember when we invited Addie Barnes? She had a crush on you. She told me in junior year, but I never told her. I liked her too, Dylan. I really liked her. And she liked you. Why did she like you? You're not as smart as me. And you're not exactly great in the looks department either. I'm everything that she could ever want, so why you? It doesn't make sense. Why you and not me? She rejected me, you know. She rejected me under the bleachers after we beat South and High. You were throwing up that undercooked corn dog, and I asked her to senior prom. I poured out all of my feelings and she said she liked me as a friend. But it was always you. Why was it you? What do you have that I don't? Even your mom and dad wanted you to be me. I never told you, but your mom told me that when we were 14. It was at your birthday party, and she was a little drunk and pulled me aside. She told me that she wished you were me. Rory's texts were abnormal. I didn't think it was possible to text that fast. And yet paragraphs upon paragraphs of text were flashing up on the screen. It looked disjointed. Missing grammar in the text that was all over the place. Rory never texted like that. If anything, his texts were casual and vague. And now he was pouring his heart out to me, and it didn't make sense. He had practically ignored me for almost two months, and then he decided to text. Part of me wanted to tell him to screw off, and yet the other parts of me felt euphoric. I could talk to him again. Maybe we could talk in person, and he would move back in. I would have my friend back. Looking at what he was saying, though, my gut twisted into knots. I swallowed a lump in my throat. Addie Barnes was a memory that I had pushed deep into the back of my mind. I promised myself that I wouldn't think about her again. There's not much to say. We had a brief fling behind Rory's back. She wanted to end it, and I agreed. 
So just your average teenage high school drama. When I opened the message, I saw three bouncing ellipses indicating that Rory was still typing. I miss you, he wrote after a pause. I miss you, I miss you, and I miss you. I want to go home, Dylan. Please, can you take me home? Something ice cold slithered down my spine. I sat up in bed and tapped out a reply. I wanted to ask if he was okay, if he had fallen out with his new friends. Instead, I bit the bullet and sent. Why are you up this late? And then as an afterthought, are you drunk? The bouncing dot stopped, and the message I had sent popped up as undelivered. At first, I thought it was a problem with my phone. I closed the app and reopened it. Roy's texts were still there, but my message was stuck as undelivered, no matter how many times I sent it. At that point, I didn't think much of it. I figured he had gotten blackout drunk and had decided to mass text me. But still though, I couldn't get the texts out of my mind. I was still thinking about them the next morning. I texted him quickly on the way to class expecting a response by lunchtime. There was nothing. I left it to the end of the day and tried again. Still nothing. All of the messages were sent but not delivered. I started to worry. I didn't even know his new address. I didn't know his new friends or his professor. Pushing bad thoughts to the back of my head, I left it for a few days. Maybe he was sick, I thought. Food poisoning, the stomach flu, something like that. I waited for him to text or call, but there was nothing. Almost three days of nothing. I felt ridiculous for worrying so much. That thought was haunting me, that I was driving myself crazy, and Rory was probably perfectly fine with his new friends, laughing and joking with them. So I told myself to stop. I told myself to stop obsessively checking my texts. I told myself to stop rereading what he had sent me, memorizing every message. The fifth day passed with nothing from Rory and I couldn't help myself. I had to find him. Rory had left some of his class schedules on my desk. According to them, he was in room 10301 in the English building. I'm not great with directions, but I managed it. The English building was at the very edge of campus and it looked more like a school. It rose from behind the trees like a mountain, ominous and foreboding. Dark brick with ornate details inlaid in the cement and mortar, twisting vines crawling up the sides, like the ground itself was trying to pull it downward. But no matter how chilling and dreadful it looked, it actually looked beautiful. The architecture was old and worn with age, nothing compared to the other buildings on campus. The photography and media building had only just been built. This one had wrought iron fencing melting with pretty brick. Flowers and trees grew wild, but they were tamed into lots. Bursts of color and fragrance as I walked by. No wonder the English students acted like they did, I thought, unable to tear my eyes from ancient stained glass windows on the top floor. The Hogwarts-like aesthetic didn't last, though. The second that I walked through a set of old wooden doors, there was a second pair of automatic doors, 
and a far more modern interior. Rory's class schedule was crumpled in my shaking hands. I found myself in a cozy reception area. There is a couch in front of the coffee table and a TV playing music videos on the wall. I could glimpse what looked like a cafe through one door. The aroma of pancakes and hot chocolate drifting through. A youngest looking woman was sitting behind a desk with a MacBook in front of her. When I started forward, she shot me a patient smile. Are you a visitor or a student? I'm a student, I said, holding Rory's schedule up and squinting at the professor's name. Can you tell me where room 10301 is? I've just started today. I'm with Professor Clayton. The woman nodded and smiled. Oh, it's no problem. She pointed upstairs. Professor Clayton is just up on the first floor, sweetie. Take a left and you'll see a lecture hall. She pulled a face. Are you sure it's Clayton you want? I know Fritz and Harper are looking for new students and you are. The woman seemed to be drinking me in, taking in every inch of me. I could already read her expression. I didn't belong. That's what she was thinking. It looked like she might say something before I heard footsteps behind me. Three students had walked through, two girls and a guy. Instead of the clothes that Rory had been wearing every morning, they were in casual wear. There were hints of some kind of uniformity. Over normal clothes, the three of them wore a loose-fitting navy blazer. One girl's hair was tied in red ribbons and the other girl blue. And they sidled past me with their heads that pressed together. They weren't talking, though. They stared forwards, and I swore when I really concentrated on them. They were walking in perfect sync. It startled me how close they were, practically intertwined with each other. The guy's head was pressed against the girl's while both girl's arms were entangled with his. When I frowned at the receptionist, she rolled her eyes. That's the English students for you. She laughed lightly. They're an interesting bunch, though when you get to know them, they're good kids. You know how writers are, always in their own world. I wasn't sure what to reply with. I had seen weird, but this was a whole other level. Rory's classmates seemed to be living in their own version of Harry Potter, and that sent a hysterical gurgle of laughter climbing up my throat. I watched the kids start up the stairs, still practically glued together, steps and sink. I looked away and shook my head. I hadn't eaten or slept since Rory's apparent disappearance, so it would make sense that my perception was messing with me. I turned back to the woman. I'm actually looking for someone. I said in a breath. Rory Daly. He's in Professor Clayton's classes and I haven't heard from him in a few days. The receptionist visibly stiffened in her seat, her cheeks paling. I haven't seen Mr. Daly in a while. I nodded, my palms going sweaty around the crumpled schedule. Uh, can you tell me where you last saw him? The receptionist shook her head. Her gaze went to her MacBook screen, though. I was sure she was just looking for an excuse to end the conversation. She sent me a bright smile in which turned into a grimace. I'm sorry, I have work to do. If you still want to sit in on Professor Clayton's class, I would hurry up. He starts in several minutes. I nodded and followed her directions, climbing the stairs. 
the woman was right. As soon as I had reached the top, I could see the room. It was huge. It reminded me of a cave with a curved ceiling and rows upon rows of desks in front of a large white screen. There was only a small handful of students. When I looked around, a dozen or so kids in these same navy blazers sat in unearthly silence. I grabbed a seat quickly at the back, dumping my bag. The room had an eerie silence to it. The only noise a thump when I awkwardly took a seat, several seats away from the guy that I had seen in the reception area. He was tall with dark hair flopping over his eyes, the navy blazer over his shirt and jeans. I couldn't help take notice of his face. All of Rory's classmates seemed to share the same perfectly sculpted skin and lips, like they had been photoshopped in real life. The girls at the front, with the red and blue ribbons, looked out of this world beautiful. I felt like I was sitting with a bunch of mannequins. Nobody spoke. The twelve of them, staring forward with the same blank expression before a guy in the front row laughed, and then the girl sitting next to him giggled, followed by others, a cacophony of laughter ringing out across the room. It was in perfect sync. The way they moved, their grins, the gleam in their eyes, almost like it was choreographed. When it spread to the guy close to me, he didn't laugh, but his lips did curve into a smile. What's so funny? A new voice sounded out, and all the heads turned to the front, once again in sync. An oldish looking man had strode in, carrying what looked like a tray of something. When I squinted, I realized that he was carrying milkshakes. Good afternoon, everyone. The man I presumed was Mr. Clayton greeted the class. He set the milkshakes on his desk and turned his smile at the twelve faces staring back. Alright, so where were we? Can someone remind me where we were last session? While he spoke, he began depositing milkshakes to each person. I watched the girl with red ribbons in her hair grasp for hers and take a long swig from the straw, red lipstick decorating the rim. The other students acted in a similar fashion grabbing for their drinks and donning them like they hadn't eaten or drank in days. My apologize for the wait. Mr. Clayton reached the kid near me and settled a shake on his desk. I noticed the boy's expression perk up at the sight of the drink. He seemed to lose all composure, and I swear that drool dripped on his chin. It was exactly what I had seen in the girl with the red ribbons, the way that she had snatched the shake. Freddy, are you going to enlighten the class on what we were talking about last lesson? The boy shrugged. Maybe, he said, if you answer my question first. The professor's eyes darkened. He reached out and took the milkshake. Mr. McKay, I'm not playing around. Then give me the shake back, I'll talk. I watched, baffled, when the teacher returned the drink. The boy, er, Freddy, leaned over and took a sip from the shake before leaning back in his chair with a satisfied smile, though it looked sarcastic. There was a prick in his expression, one that sent ice sliding down my spine. Sure, he said. 
before catapulting into an explanation I don't even think he breathed through. His words were convoluted and confusing. I could barely understand what he was saying, like he was speaking in gibberish. It reminded me of Rory, maybe in an even smarter version of Rory. This guy didn't shut up for five minutes, and even when the others were asking questions, he answered each one thoroughly with added context. I was so busy trying to wrap my brain around Freddy's words that I barely noticed when a shadow fell over my desk. I don't believe we've met. Mr. Clayton's smile had far too many teeth when I looked up at him. In fact, I'm quite sure that I wasn't notified of a new student. Swallowing hard, I smiled back. I'm Dylan, I said. I just started today. Dylan. The professor nodded. Huh, well, I haven't heard anything about you. His smile grew and Freddy choked on his milkshake. He was laughing at me. However, regardless of your circumstances, I would like to welcome you to our little family. Clayton spread out his arms before placing his shake in front of me. It was an egg green cob, a see-through plastic straw poking out. When I could only frown at him, he gestured for me to drink it, and I grabbed the cup hesitantly. Don't be shy, Dylan. It's just a special concoction of mine. He tapped his right temple. It helps you concentrate and well. Let's say it opens your mind. You'll see things a lot clearer. Like drugs. I couldn't help the words slip out of my mouth and Clayton chuckled. Not drugs, Dylan. It's just yogurt, strawberries, a little whipped cream, and a special ingredient. Nodding, I took a hesitant sip. It tasted just like he described. Yogurt, strawberries, and whipped cream. With a satisfied smile, the professor returned to the front. Freddy continued talking, and I fell into a sort of daze. I wasn't sure what had happened. Maybe the shakes really were drugged. But as the class went by, I started to understand Freddy's words. When he interrupted the professor and corrected him, Mr. Clayton started writing notes on the board and urged the class to. I found myself grabbing my laptop and opening it up, my hands itching to follow along. I had spent my whole life unable to take in information properly, and yet I found myself writing paragraphs of notes on a subject I knew nothing about. And yet 15 minutes of teaching had not only given me a basic idea, but full contextual knowledge. It was like floating on a cloud. I could feel myself swaying slightly in my chair, my head spinning around and around, and yet I didn't care. If it was drugs, then so what? If drugs could make me feel like I was actually intelligent and on Rory and Freddy's level, then why would I care? As I typed, I barely noticed, but I had almost drank the whole shake. I didn't even remember drinking it but I could taste it at the back of my throat. Yogurt mixed with strawberries and something tangy, something I couldn't quite wrap my head around. I understood why the other students were obsessed with the shake, because I was too. When I looked up from my laptop screen, my head was full of fog. When I turned my head, the world seemed to go topsy-turvy for a moment. Freddy wasn't typing, I quickly noticed. 
Professor Clayton was speaking, and I was still taking in information, but my gaze was on Freddy. It took me a disorienting moment to realize that he wasn't even working. Instead, he was leaning back in his chair, his gaze flickering back and forth, a worn smile on his lips. When I followed his eyes, I saw the pencil that he had been using. It was hovering a few feet off the table, spinning in midair, which seemed to be entertaining him. When I properly looked at him, blinking through my brain fog, I realized that it was Freddy's manic eye movements that were controlling the pencil. But it wasn't just the pencil. When my gaze caught the edge of my desk, I swear that I could see every speck of dust. I looked up and the room seemed to get brighter, like my vision had suddenly turned HD. The shakes really were drugged, I thought, turning back to my own laptop screen. I didn't have to squint like normal. I could see everything. Drugs, I thought, looking back to Freddy and his dancing pencil. But still, it didn't stop me from drinking the drags and then sucking on the straw. The stuff was good. When the class ended, everybody packed up and left in silence. There was no laughing, no talking. Just silence. I waited until I was sure that I could stand without tipping over. My body felt different. I felt like I could run a marathon, every inch of me buzzing with an energy that I've never felt before. I left the class in a daze. My head was still spinning, but the corridor was brighter. When I walked on the stairs, I could see exactly what the receptionist was doing on her laptop. Facebook. She was talking to her mom. A new kid. When I spun around, Freddy was standing in front of me. He looked different up close. From a distance, he looked unearthly beautiful. But now that he was inches from my face, I noticed dark shadows under sunken eyes that were bloodshot. Freddy looked almost malnourished. I wondered if it was my seemingly heightened senses from the milkshake that was letting me see him for what he really looked like. He wasn't smiling. You're Rory's friend, Dylan, right? Yeah, I said. Was it that obvious? Freddy wasn't smiling. Yeah, kinda. We don't get newcomers, he shrugged. Rory was our first freshman, but he left a few days ago. It's a pity, really. I liked him. Freddy's smile grew. He was the smartest in our little family. I nodded slowly. So where is he? Who, Rory? He shrugged. Home, probably. I don't think he could keep up with the class. B.S., I thought. I barely scraped a C in English and I could understand it perfectly, with the help of that shake. A girl appeared behind him, the one with blue ribbons in her hair. She fixed me with a smile, though I could see a grotesque twist in her face, like there was something behind the beauty that I wasn't seeing. The girl moved towards me, her movements slow and suave, attaching her lips to my ear. Maybe you'll be the lucky one. Freddy rolled his eyes and yanked her back. Knock it off, Violet. Violet shrugged with a smile before disappearing into the crowd of students. Freddy watched her go before turning to me. He cocked a brow. Do you have dishwashing soap? 
His bizarre question took me off guard. Yeah, why? Freddy didn't reply. He only made what looked like a drinking motion, tipping his head back, before running to catch up with Violet, who I could glimpse at the end of the corridor. She was waiting for him. All traces of these smiles stretched across her face were gone. When Freddy joined her, they pressed their heads together. This time, though, I could hear them. Through buzzing white noise and chatter from passing students, I could still make out their voices. Anything yet. That was Violet. Nope. Just static noise. It's driving me insane. I didn't stay around to hear the rest of their conversation. I went back to my dorm, but I couldn't concentrate. The voices in my head didn't stop. They were constant, even when I pressed a pillow over my head. I could hear a conversation all the way down the hall. I could hear a girl crying in the girl's dorm. I thought that it would get better, but it got worse. I started to crave more of the milkshake, and the more that I was craving, the worse the voices drenched in static got. They went from voices to whispers, to what sounded like thoughts bouncing around my skull. Should I drop out? Does Maya really think that I don't know about her screwing my boyfriend? Crap, did I poison my roommate? They blended together in one confusing mess of noise in my head, and it was only when I fully concentrated on each one was when I could pick them out. I was overwhelmed with curiosity at first, which quickly faded once I knew that the endless screech of whispers in my head wasn't stopping. I wanted it to stop. I tried to sleep it off, diving into bed and shoving my face into my pillows. And this is where I'm not sure what happened. Believe me, I've gone over this repeatedly and I still can't understand it. I fell asleep in my room on the top floor of the boys' dorm. When I came to, I was standing swaying in front of the English building. When I looked down at myself, I was filthy. I had a vague memory of stumbling down the stairs and crashing through the doors to the boys' dorm. It was pitch black and I was barefoot. But there was a smell that I couldn't get out of my head. A taste that was still stuck through the back of my throat. I entered the English building through the main doors, which were open. Why were they open? The lights were on. The receptionist was gone, but there were people in the building. The voices, thankfully, had stopped. I was only aware of the blissful silence as I tread up the stairs. My body was on autopilot, working for me. When I reached the top, I noticed the classroom doors were shut. The hallway was dark, but the room was lit up through the glass. I slowly made my way over. There were voices coming from inside. I don't know why I was there. Maybe it was the aroma in the air that I could smell. Strawberries and yogurt as well as that tantalizing taste which had stuck with me. I stood there for a moment, frozen, unsure what to do. And then more voices. It sounded like Mr. Clayton's class were inside. Why, though? The thought filled my cotton candy mind. What were they doing? And before I could stop myself, I pulled the door open slightly and peeked through the crack. I was right. The whole class were there. Though this time, 
They were in pajamas gathered around the teacher's desk. Though they were blocking me from seeing what they were looming over. Careful, Mr. Clayton grumbled. There's not much left. No crap, Freddy's voice. There's barely enough for the next few days. What then? The student seemed to shift, and I caught a glimpse of Clayton's desk. There was something smeared on the wood. I wanted to look away and ignore it, but I couldn't. It was the type of color, the type of shade that I couldn't tear my eyes from. Red. I was seeing bright, mesmerizing red pooling on the desk. Remind me again why we're keeping, you know, Violet drifted off. I think we have what we need. More splashes of red. When the students moved around the desk, I got another peek. This time, I got a glimpse of an arm. It was a tanned arm hanging off the edge, and there was something attached to the wrist. A beaded bracelet. It was black. The perfect fit. Because I had made sure that it would fit. I had spent hours on Amazon trying to find the best one. When Rory had opened it our junior year, he had slid it onto his wrist with a grin. Holy crap, he laughed. You got the right size. Rory's voice was still bouncing around in my brain, but I couldn't concentrate on it. My legs had turned to jelly. The students moved in, this time allowing me to fully see what was on Professor Clayton's desk. Rory. But not all of Rory. His body was still there, but it looked wrong. It was painted red. Everything around him was red. His head was open and hollowed out. I wanted to look away, but I couldn't. Because once I was looking, I had to know. There was a gaping cavity where Rory's brain should be. Instead, I saw the glistening white of his skull. I couldn't stop staring at his face. Because it was still there. It was still Rory. His eyes were closed peacefully, and there was what looked like a gentle smile on his lips, despite his body having been ravaged apart. I was still thinking of Rory's smile, his laugh, when the girl with red ribbons in her hair reached into the cavity in his skull and scooped out more fleshy pink. Freddy's gloved hands were slick scarlet. He placed something on the desk, but my vision was blurring. I saw chunks of pink hit the bottom of plastic. I heard the mechanical screech of a blender ripping into my ears, and I saw empty green cups and Violet's arms. Something warm, something hot and rancid crept back up my throat. I had to slam my hand over my mouth to gag the scream waiting to erupt. Violet's lips were curled in disgust. We don't need his body, she asked. It's freaking me out looking at him. We won't for much longer, Clayton hummed. Anything yet? No, Freddy said. If this was all for nothing. I wasn't even aware that I was stumbling back. A dull fog settling over my vision. I took slow footsteps back down the stairs, gagging myself the whole way. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. When I hit cold air, my stomach heaved. I was screaming, but no sound was coming out. I made it back to my dorm and spent hours kneeling on the bathroom floor, sticking my finger down my throat, trying to bring him back up. 
Rory. I was screaming, slamming my head into the toilet. But someone must have been playing a cruel trick on me. I tried donning detergent, but I just threw that back up. I watched it come back out of me, and I waited for the milkshake. Waited for Rory, but it didn't come. It wouldn't come out. I somehow got a hold of my phone, but my fingers wouldn't dial 911. And when they did, the operator asked me what was wrong. I just screamed. I screamed until my throat was raw and my phone screen was shattered. I don't know how many times I threw it against the wall. I was on my ninth attempt, dazedly watching the screen come through when my arm dropped. Please help me. A voice. I don't know where I am. It wasn't like the others, nameless, with no identity. But I knew who it was. I could hear him screaming inside my skull, and I felt agony filling me to the brim, acid burning in my veins. I don't know where I am, he wailed. I don't know where I am. I don't know where I am. A pause before. I want to go home, Dylan. Can you take me home? I want to go home. Just take me home. And then came the knocking, the shouting. Freddy. Dylan, he was shouting. Dylan, I know he's awake. Listen to me. You need to calm down, okay? You're scaring him. I couldn't move. I reached out for my phone again, but my arm fell limp. Dylan. Freddy's head was pressed against the door. I could sense his desperation. He's talking to you. You need to tell me what he's saying. Please. His voice was twisted with pain. Dylan, he's hurting us. When the door that I had locked shut flew open on its own, I got to my feet and slammed it in Freddy's face. He won't get out of my head. Rory won't get out of my head. I ate him. I ate my best friend. Someone please help me. Tell me how to get him out. He's whispering to me now. He's so cold. It's so dark where he is. Please, how can I get him out of my head? I hope that you all enjoyed today's stories. Once again, happy Halloween. And please stay safe and sound out there in the world, wherever you may be. And as always, stay creepy.